2: Your host,
0: two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to
3: Creek Devil.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have Daryl in Georgia joining us today. Um, he was referred to us by David on David, I hope I got your last name correctly um pronounced, but, uh, so Daryl, how are you doing? I'm good. Tom, you guys had a chance to speak, so I'm going to have you go ahead and kick this off.
4: Okay. Yeah. Hey, Daryl. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us and welcome aboard. I really appreciated our, our, I think we talked for over an hour yesterday about your encounters. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting stuff. And, you know, I just want to say for a lot of folks out there, um, especially the people that live in the region where you're at in georgia who you know maybe aren't familiar with the creature being there they they actually are there we get a lot of reports from that region but um if you wouldn't mind um start off with the account in the boy scouts with the uh, the cabin and and that whole thing because that was really fascinating and you went through the whole process of elimination i did the same thing we can't imagine what else it was um so i'll just hand the mic over to you and uh, fill us in
1: okay um i won't go into it now but if you wanted the 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 way that i wrote it out i'll let i'll give us time to do that later and you can edit it back in or whatever um but i'll just do just straight kind of to the point uh at, at this part um yeah we always went like uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's weekend, always down there uh, to the Boy Scout camp. And we stayed in a different location than we would normally stay in during the summer. It was kind of up on the mountain and uh, just a not a great looking cabin, but it was what we called winter cabins. And uh, so I was one of the older boys and senior patrol leader and order of the era and all the, you know, this Stuff that whatever means you're rough and tough, I guess. But anyway, um, and our troop really had more Eagles than we had tenderfoot. So we were uh, a troop that, you know, of seasoned guys. And most of us were football players and stuff like that. um, You know, for, for our high school teams, but our troop was great and strong. And it was the one everybody wanted to be in. So, Here we were again on our, you know, annual trip down there. And, uh, I had become one of the older ones and the thing that makes it where you're not really sure what it was, was we were all good at, you know, after you come up from a little kid and you realize that all of the stuff that you were scared of was somebody doing it, um, it's, it's, you know, just leads you to think, okay, it's who was it, you know, so anyway, and part of being good at scaring, you got to have a good setup. So it was somebody's like, "But then tell the story of the Wolf Boy." So he tells the story of the Wolf Boy. Well, the story of the Wolf Boy, and I could go into it better later if you want me to. But basically, it was a I assume a fictitious story that happened uh, like a long round in the late 30s. Of some family that got scarlet fever, and people came and gave them uh, food and just kind of left it at the edge of the property. And um, all of a sudden, they didn't see people uh, coming to get the food anymore. And they assumed they died and they had a baby that they would see on the porch, and
3: uh, they didn't see any of
1: that. So when the local folks went to give them some food and they didn't see any reaction, they eased up and found the the folks had uh, passed away and they found some red hair on the bed and uh, no baby they figured like some you know maybe the wolves ate the baby or something and uh, so it goes the story goes on to where um, he, this wolf boy has been seen uh, and he he comes down from the mountains to get the food um, especially during the wintertime and, uh, like I said, it's a lot more embellishments on it than this part. So, you know, that I'm just really, really abbreviating it. Um, however, uh, once that story is told that, you know, and you know, it's every now and then people still might get a glimpse of him. And so that's the cue for the older guys to get up and, and, you know, get ready because you know, the. The pump has been primed. The little kids are now scared, and so it's going to make it easy for us big kids to slip off, because uh, usually they're right under our arms, you know. Trying to, you know, they look up to us, and now they're, you know, they they're past that. They're hugging up on. They're 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 onto the scoutmaster. So me and a guy, I'm just going to call him Moose for now. Um, keep his name out of it because I didn't talk to him, so I'll just refer to him as Moose. He's a big, big football player a uh, very successful guy now, uh, but after the story was over, um, he was hungry, so he went down to the kind of the bottom, almost a, it's almost like a basement, but it was kind of next to the building, it was all, it was a weird looking shaped building, so he, anyway, he goes in, and it was down to the bottom, I said, well, I'm kind of hungry too, so I'll grab something with him right quick, and then we'll come up, and get a you know, a drink. And, uh, I'm almost to the door when moose just about knocks me down. He is terrified of something. And I heard some pots, you know, kind of rattling and stuff. And he comes flying up this hill. I was like, come on. I'm like, what? But I knew the look on his face, he wasn't kidding. And so I took off running and, um, I had actually forgot it until I just read the the story that when I had wrote. Um, I had tripped on a root, and when I was holding it, I had a flashlight in my hand, and I went to um, catch myself. I ended up hitting my my fingers between the flashlight and that root and it knocked two fingernails off. But I didn't, you know, no time for that, for pouting or anything. I had to hurry up and get on in that building because I didn't know what, Michael, what Moose was scared of. So um, we go in, he slams the door behind us, and I'm going, what, what? And he's just holding the door, and he's like, help. And so everybody's like, I don't know what's going on, but if Moose is hollering for help, we better help. By the time, bam, something hits the door. And I mean, it was huge and it knocks us back. And so we're all running up, trying to keep the door shut and uh, pulling up, uh, pulled up a, some, two of them um, like steel army cots that they used to have, them old heavy ones that you make bunk beds out of. Um, we pushed that against the door and you can still feel it kind of pushing back. And um, it, it, it. we only did a really good job of holding it when we had like six or seven uh, teenagers that are football players holding the door. I Man, that's how strong this thing was. I couldn't believe it wasn't to break the hinges and or, or pull them out. And, uh, but the door opened to the inside, so you know we could push out um, and for we'd been, we'd whittled around and made, everybody kind of made some walking sticks that uh, weekend during the day, just, you know, kind of messing around. And, um, I actually still got mine. I had thought I had shoved mine through that thing, but I didn't. I I still got mine. I had a, I put a decent carving on it and it looks like a, the head of it looks kind of like a cobra. It looked really cool when I was a kid. Don't look too cool now, but, uh, it's not too bad, but at any rate, um, one of the kids had made one that was way too big. I mean, it's like, why in the world do you want a walking stick this big? Um, it's about big around as a baseball or, or kind of like halfway up a, a solo cup. That was about the diameter of the walking stick he made. And I'm pretty sure it was hickory. And um, it just irritated everybody else that. It's like, why would you make a walking stick? You ain't even big. I mean, you can't even use it. It's too big, and it, you know. So he's like, "Well, can not nobody break my walking stick?" And so we tried to break it on purpose just to see if we could. So um, I know M- 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 Moose and I both, at the same time, put it between a forked tree and was, you know, trying to break that thing just to see if we could do it, and we couldn't do it. And so. Anyway, as this thing is outside, and it's you know it's you know you can kind of hear some growling uh but just a lot of strength just pushing on that door and um beside the door, between the door and the fireplace, uh it was an old wood siding building, um but it didn't have any insulation, it was just you know just slats was all it was, and there was a piece that the whole siding wasn't broke, it was like split. And so it you could look down through there and see outside. And um, so we began to shove a walking stick through and pow it break and come right back inside. And uh and shove another one. Pow. Well I said, I bet it won't break this kid's. So I got that big one. And I looked down through there and I could see a red leg um, and I see fur. It's like pretty long, red-looking fur on it. And I'm thinking, who in the world is this? I mean, we've gone through some pretty elaborate schemes before to make our pranks be for real. But, I mean, this is off the chart. I mean, I don't know who can be this strong. And usually you put on a mask, you don't put on fur pants. You know what I'm saying? So here's these, and plus it was just really too, it was out of scale, but I didn't realize how bad out of scale it was. Uh, you know, wow, is this part of the leg only, you know, things you don't think about until you look back at it later in life. I, you know, I looked at a recent picture of that cabin. I'm thinking, my goodness, man, I was looking at the knee or the, just at the shin, and as high as that was, good night. No wonder it was so strong. And um, so, anyway, I take that big walking stick, and I'm looking through that crack, and it, it just—it had just enough, it was just, that crack was just wide enough. I, I shoved that thing through there, and I, I felt it hit me. And uh, it kind of let out a a moan and a groan, and
3: pow!
1: I mean, a loud pow. It broke that stick just that fast in half, and then both pieces come right back in that crack. And at this point, it scared the scoutmaster, and he was already nervous because he's looking and he's he's seeing all of us that usually would be doing it, and he sees all of us and uh, especially the terrified look on Moose's face and the fact that you know uh, you know here we are just holding trying to hold something back and it's pushing all of us and he knows how strong we were you know he'd come and watch us play football you know we got big linemen and i was a tight end and you know it's like we had a whole you know (laughs) we had some big boys and uh so when that thing breaks that stick he sticks his gun out the window and shoots twice in the air and when he does it runs off and um So, you know, of course, we're all you know kind of nervous about ever opening the door, but we opened the door and didn't see anything and didn't look for any tracks. And nobody ever showed up that if you went that far to scare us, and some people had uh, before, like we had a UFO thing that a guy put on a real elaborate prank uh, to do a UFO, and, you know, after the UFO thing kind of dwindled out, about fifteen minutes later, here comes this guy from our town. Hey, what's going on? And just like you know, so we just didn't know what it was or who it was, and my and and Moose never would say. It's like, what did you see? And he would just just shake his head, like like he didn't know, and he wasn't gonna tell us. And uh, so I didn't really, you know, time goes on, and I didn't think anything more about it um, until really. I've mean, I wondered, but I've never been able to figure out anything of what it could have been um, until just recently when we stopped by the Bigfield Museum and I saw where so many uh, encounters um, had been uh, down there on the Flint River area um, where we were. And I'm like, wow. I wonder if that's what it could have been because I've, you know, you try to, you, you hit rewind and hit play, you hit rewind, you hit play in your memory bank over and over and over. And every time two plus two equals four and seven, eight. And it's just like, this don't add up. And, uh, so. I don't know what that was.
3: <laughs>
1: There's no way it was, uh, I, I do not believe it was anybody in a suit because I don't think nobody's that strong th- to be able to push that door, but absolutely nobody's strong enough to take that big walking stick and go,
3: pow,
1: and just snap it in a second and shove it right back through that hole. Um, and so I don't know.
4: But that Darryl, that was the that was the part for me that really... Uh, that was a convincing. I mean, the whole story was convincing, but that—that's the part that you just can't duplicate. That there's how would you know if somebody's pulling a prank on you? How would they break that? He said it's you know about the diameter of a baseball bat. How are you going to do that and then shove it through the hole that quick to pop out like that?
3: Yeah,
1: I mean that was the and that's what really scared the scoutmaster. And you know he's just like, oh no, you know this ain't this ain't one of my guys and this ain't. You know, he could. He didn't know anybody that could have done that either. And uh, so, you know, that was kind of what defined that area, you know, at the time. And what's funny is, I looked around. And there's blood everywhere. It's like, where's this blood coming from? And then, your adrenaline does funny things, you know. Uh, and I finally realized where the blood was coming from. It was coming from my two missing fingernails, um, where I had smashed. <laughs> running up that hill where i tripped and hit my, hit my fingers between my uh, flashlight and my, in and in another root or a rock or something, but it knocked two fingernails off. And, and through all that whole process, I wasn't even thinking about my fingers. I was trying to thinking about keeping that door shut. And, uh, so anyway, I'd bled all, I'd bled all over the place, but, um, it, you know, I didn't even care. Um, during that part, after that, my fingers started throbbing, but, um, it's just, you know, it's just funny how the human body works at that point, but...
4: <laughs> no, so that I, I, can, I can imagine, though. It's like, well, worry about the fingers <laughs> later. I just need to get out of here. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, my, my life is in jeopardy. I can do without some fingernails. But... Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you've got to not... I mean, like, I said, like we had talked about last night, you, we looked at everything else that, you know, I don't really think it was a bear. Um, and... I don't know how a human could do it, um, and that was a well. You real would think your looking leg.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, if it was a bear, you would think this guy a moose. He would know what a bear look like, and it's going to scare you. But it's not going to chase you up there, and it's not going to be breaking sticks and all that kind of stuff. You're right.
3: You're right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would run off, but. The... The only thing that just makes it be so weird was it, it followed the setup, you know, and that's what I called it, you know, with the setup of, of us scaring and it the timing of it was perfect. Had it happened any time other than then, it would have, you know, scared all of us instantly. And, and st- you know, as we're sitting there trying to hold the door back on, like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? <laughs> And it was like, is it this guy no? And, and i was looking around, and all of us are right there. I mean, every one of us. And you know, we're in the cabin, and there's nobody else at all in the camp other than the caretaker of the camp, and he lived, golly, about a mile and a about a mile and a quarter uh, opposite direction of where we were, and uh, he didn't he didn't ever come down through there. So I don't know what it was, but. It sure scared us scouts, that's for sure.
4: Well, and the other good point that you made was if somebody's going to be having fun with you and, and uh, you know, pulling a prank on you, the whole point of it is that uh, you can get the benefit of it, right? Right. And, and yeah, nobody they're showed gonna come up.
1: Get credit. Yeah, they're going to come get credit. Because the guy that did the, you know, the, the year before, the guy that did the, the UFO stuff, he put a lot of time and energy in it. I mean, it was it was pretty elaborate. I mean, he had lights rigged up. I don't even know where he got the power from to do it, but they had all kind of Martian suit he had on. I mean, it was crazy. But, you know, after all that goes away, then it's not too long. Here he comes. You know, hey, guys, what's going on? It's like, what are you doing here? And uh, he said, well, you know, i was just in the area. it's like, you're not in the area. Nobody's ever in that area. They're like going to the middle of nowhere. You're not going to go there unless you're going there on purpose. So you know, but you know, we all knew it was him, and you know, he was like, "Really? A UFO came? Tell me about it." You know, and so he's wanting to hear, you know, the little kids. And then you know,
3: I was so scared.
1: You know, so they're they're coming to hear, you know, the reaction.
4: So, um, that never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's the payoff, right? Yeah,
3: right.
1: Yeah, and, and I just
4: want to make a a point this is what hoaxers do as well you know and people hoax stuff they you know they got to be around so they can see the the reaction so um right. No it's a very interesting yep. story and again, I just want to go back and that that oversized hickory hiking stick is really the clincher <laughs> or the, the one of the key elements there that just says this was you know there was not a person doing this.
1: right. Yep. Uh, I I agree. Um, you know, like I was, I was probably 17 when it happened um, and you know, there's life is blooming in, in high gear around you when you're 17 years old and you're involved in, you know, everything that you, you know, kind of quickly, you know, forget about those instances. Um, you know, and you don't you don't dwell on them a whole lot. But sometimes you, what was that? You know, and you get together with one of your buddies, and what was that? I don't know. I can't believe it broke that stick. Me either. You know, and you just kind of go through that. But nobody ever ever would have thought that it was a bigfoot. Um, it just that was the furthest thing from our mind, but it could have been. But, I mean, I didn't think about it until uh, I was at the museum and. I saw that they were, uh, you know, they had presents along the Flint River down there, and that's where that was, so uh, very well could be.
4: Well, I think that's a real good point, because a lot of people will have an experience at one point in their life, and, and they just don't make that connection until they get some additional evidence by looking at, you know, like I said, you went to a Bigfoot museum. So um, tell me a little bit, or tell me about the the other encounter that was absolutely undeniable and include the whole thing about, you know, uh, cause you had a real interesting story about, um, people have to get a permit to put a light on their vehicle. Some guy wanted to put a green light on his vehicle. He, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. I uh,
1: can. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell that too. Um, and I guess I'll tell it first and then I'll get, get into my story. My wife worked for the state, and she issued permits. Like if you're on a record service, you got to get a permit to run a yellow light. If you, if you're a, a police department, you still got to get a permit to run a, a blue light, and so forth. Well, this guy called, and he said he needed a light, and she says, "Okay, what for?" And he's, um, you need a yellow light, or you you know, and so he's like, "No, I think a green would work." And she goes, well, "What do you need that for?" And he said, well, I can't tell you, I think it's funny. And she's like, well, why would I think it's funny? And he said, you just will. And so she said, well, then you don't need one. And he says, well, it's actually Bigfoot uh, search and recovery. or rescue one of the two of these. And so she goes, oh, so you're like a tow truck, like a big tow truck. And, you know, thinking that was the name of it, it was Bigfoot recovery um and you know like the ones that do the tractor trailers because a friend of mine's got one i think that's named name of biz is bigfoot um but uh anyway he goes no 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 um like uh sasquatch she said are you kidding me you hunt sasquatch you're telling me that this is real and he said yeah she's like okay yeah right and he goes no 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 he's i, I knew you would have that reaction everybody does he says, so there's really a big foot down here, around here. And he goes, oh, yeah, there's a whole family of them in Rome. Um And, you know, that's, you know, pretty well known. I've seen them. And, uh, and so she is telling me this at home, that she had had this you know, conversation at work. And uh, so she said, so why do you need a light? And he says, well, I may go in the woods and I'll go wherever, go wherever um, sign leads me to go. And if I leave this light on, this flashing, I never know where I might end up. And if I get, you know, to a high point or out where I can see, I can see which way that light's flashing and I can go back to my vehicle and find it that way. Because this one, you know, what right before GPS and all that stuff. Um, and she's like, you don't need no permit for that. You just need to remember where you parked your truck. I'm not going to give you a permit. And He says, Well, okay, well, you know, I thought I'd try. Have a nice day. And she goes, Yeah, okay, good luck. You know, and that was the end of it. So she comes home to tell me about that. I'm going, Hmm, that's interesting. Well, boy, did I wish she had kept his number later on. Um, and I guess I guess I'll go into my into my experience now. Um mm-hmm. gotta drink the water right quick. So I was a turkey hunter. still do. And um I hunted a lot in the national forest um, down in Oconee National Forest down near where the Oconee River runs down, uh, kind of below Jackson, um, and uh, I was a sprinkler fitter at the time, and we was working some odd hours, having to work at night, and uh, so I got off, drove as fast as I could down to the Turkey Woods to get there before daylight and uh, so so i make it i get there and it's a long road that that you can hunt off of during the weekend it's pretty it can be pretty crowded um well i say crowded <laughs> it's it's a lot of land but if you see four truck four or five trucks through the way we call that crowded but it's really not crowded but um anyway when i got to the little spot it's like the logging roads with a with a mound of dirt pushed up so you can't really just go in there and you you'd park right there in that in front of that little mound there was a Volkswagen parked in the spot where I was planning on hunting well the way you normally go if you park there you kind of go to the left and go down and you'll end up hunting um downriver the the next little parking spot was open and I've hunted it before and it was okay it's not my favorite but it was all right I said, "Well, I'll just hunt this one. Give that guy that spot." So I get my gun ready and everything, and it's still it's still a little bit dark. It's starting to they just break. Is the day is just starting to break, and um, you do a lot of listening at that time. And uh, so I I call and I get a gobbler. To, I mean, he hits right
3: off. I'm like, "All
1: right," and um, so I wait just a minute and see if something else is going to gobble because it was towards that guy. But you never hang around right there where that guy was hunting because I've hunted that spot a bunch. Um, you end up as soon as you get out, you don't. You're not hunting. You're you got to go to where you really plan on hunting. So I didn't figure he'd be there. But what I call again. Thing answers. Call again and answers. I'm like, well, all right. I guess he likes me boom it done got a little bit day, more daylight and i heard shotgun go off and said well they're going to need hunting a dead bird congratulations mr volkswagen so that meant somebody else was in the woods that day and as early as he shot it chances are he's not through hunting he's you know he's gonna have a you know he's he got lucky he you know he's killed killed a bird and uh, so i went on down the hill through a bottom and over a creek and over another creek and made my way uh down up river which was a long a long way away from where if that guy would have went in where he went would kind of lead you to it's almost like it you know one goes one direction one goes another um just by the lay of the land but when you're turkey hunting you go wherever the sound is just like that guy does about the sign, you know, He he follows sign. Wherever the sign is, that's where you're going. Well when you're turkey hunting, you do the same thing. You know, if you got a gobbler, then okay, this is where I'm headed. And um I had hunted and didn't really hear anything. It then got late morning and if you turkey hunt, you know that you may not always get tree to trigger. That's you know, they're in the tree, they'll gobble and they'll come down and they might come to you. I've killed several that's tree to trigger. Those are fun. Uh, but oftentimes they know where their hen is that, you know, they're normal. And they'll usually service that hen or those hens kind of right off the bat. And they know where they are. And But later in the morning, they have to go out on the prowl. And um, if you get one to gobble later on in the morning, chances are he's going to come. And he's going to come pretty quick. He's not, he's usually not got hens with him and gets hung up as, as a term that we use. So I'm, I'm in a really neat-looking spot. It just looked kind of enchanted. I don't know why I thought that when I got to that little spot, but it just looked enchanted. It was a swamp bottom. Uh, had a real pretty bottom on one side, and uh, you could see pretty far, but kind of back the direction that I came from, um, there were some bushes and some honeysuckle vines and stuff that were along the way and it was a pretty time in spring. The dogwoods was in full bloom, and um, so I had just kind of wrenched my mouth out and got my diaphragm put back in my mouth, and uh, I called a pretty good, pretty hot. I wanted to get one to gobble if I could because I really wanted to walk one through that pretty bottom. Sure enough, one gobbled at me. I'm like, hot dog. And uh, so I've kind of, I, 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 I cut the, like that again and and he gobbled i'm like okay good now i got a good i'm pinpointed him i know where he's at he's about 100 yards away there's a humongous tree right here that i can sit at and this is going to be sweet so i i get my i sit down i'm in full camo my boots are camo my pants shirt got a face mask on that's camo and I got a camouflage gun. So I'm pretty I'm pretty camoed out, which most taking hunters are. And um, I go ahead and I get in shooting position. And so I got my gun resting on my knee. And like I said, I, I call pretty good with a diaphragm. And um, so I don't, you know, I guess that's a blessing because some people can't because it tickles their mouth. But it don't bother me. But it means I got I, my hands are free. And because if you got a box call, you gotta you gotta work it with your hand and usually it takes two hands because you gotta hold one to do the so anyway, I'm hands-free. And um but one thing I, one thing you'll learn too when you're turkey hunting is just because they're gobbling don't mean you're gonna get to say the blessing and eat that sucker later. You gotta learn when to shut up. And um he knows where you're at. You don't gotta keep talking to him. Now he'll get mad if you don't keep talking, because nature says she goes to him. He'll like gobble and he might go towards her, but she's going to be coming to him because she's trying to do what nature does. She's trying to get her, she's trying to get all her eggs, um, fertilized. So anyway, I'm sitting there and I'm fighting the urge to call, but I want to call because this gobbler, oh, I did call one more time because the first time he was about a hundred yards away, called again, still about a hundred yards away. I waited just a little bit. And I called and he's about seventy-five yards away. So he's moving. And he's coming straight to me. So, you know, your heart's starting to thump and uh you know, you just know any minute this thing is gonna he's on the move. Just, you know, be patient, and give him time, and don't mess nothing up. And uh so I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, five minutes goes by, and it should be time. All right, come on buddy, where you at? Where you at? he's not coming so the gun starts getting kind of heavy and i reach back and i do a little bit of scratching just on the opposite side of my body to try to make it sound like i'm further away than i really am um because one thing about it when you hunt national forest um you're hunting against nature i mean you're hunting nature and all what they're i mean those birds get smart down there anyway but they get real educated in a hurry because they got everybody from experienced hunters guys that are that even made make hunting videos down there to the guy that went to Walmart last night, and this morning he's a turkey hunter, you know they don't have a clue what he's doing you got to, everybody's gotta start somewhere, but I'm just saying they get educated real quick, and so you, like I said you gotta learn you gotta learn when to be quiet and uh so. I'm quiet, I'm quiet, I'm quiet, and probably fifteen to twenty minutes go by, and I should have been seen bird by now, and then they see nothing I ain't hearing anything, and I got my ears turned on i mean wide open um it's It's like listening louder uh, it's kind of a weird term, but um anybody's really listening for something that knows how to listen drives my drive, if I tell my wife listen what are you listening for? It's like, you'd be quiet. We could hear it. You know, it's like, oh, sometimes it drives me nuts. It's like, just freeze. Just quit breathing, quit doing everything. Just listen loud. And, um, anyway, so I'm sitting there listening as loud as I can. And, um, every now and then I'll scratch the leaves behind me and I'm like, crap, he should be here by now. So I just went, I just did a real hard cut with my, and it sounded a lot better than that. Cause I had a, diaphragm in but uh i did that and when i did he gobbled well he's about a hundred yards away 90 degrees from where he originally was i'm like what the crap well ain't no name me sitting here hunting him right here I, so i decided i'm going to jump up and run and kind of flank him and get on the other side of him and hunt so i went to get up so i grabbed my i grabbed my gun and you know i'm kind of rolling up we got a bad so it takes me a second but i get up pretty quick and I look over my left shoulder, and there he was—not the turkey, but I—I I thought maybe it was the guy with the Volkswagen. It was, it, and he—he he was shocked. He was like, <gasps> and he's standing there, kind of like a linebacker, you know, just in, ready, kind of squatted down in that ready position, but not really squatted, but just kind of bent over a little bit, um, you know, hands kind of would be down you know, just kind of down in a shocked looking position. And I continue to get on. And he starts walking a little towards me, but turning because there was some honeysuckles and bushes and stuff that it was gonna go and turn and go under. I'm thinking, what kind of camouflage has this got on guy got on? And he is huge. But one thing I know, there ain't a turkey hunter alive that kills a national forest bird that ain't gonna brag about it. I, they gonna brag. If you killed a bird that morning, you are gonna tell somebody you killed a bird. And it's not uncommon to call up somebody if you're a good caller. Um, and I consider myself a good caller. Um, and oftentimes you'll be calling, sounding like a hen, and somebody will be thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this is a hen that's got a gobbler with it. So. It's not uncommon to call up somebody. And I thought that's what happened. So it didn't really scare me at this point. I thought I had called up a hunter, but as I, so I get my gun and I look and the guy's now moving and he's got this big stride. It's just one of the most graceful slides you'll ever see in your life. Just very fluid, but his arms are moving just kind of funny and he's long arms. And he turns and ducks with his shoulder and his head under a dogwood limb, and goes behind them honeysuckle and, and bushes there, and I can't see him anymore. I'm going, "Hey, wait!" Because I'm thinking, "Hey, wait! Tell me what that bird was like." And um, as I'm and I'm already thinking, "Where's your gun?" And um, and I had stepped up like walking towards where that guy was that because I was wanting to say, hey, man, turn, stop running from me. It's okay. You, you didn't mess me up. I'll, you know, I'm fishing the head out here to this turkey. Uh, but I want to know what your bird was like and have you seen anything? You know, so turkey hunters talk if you run into each other in the woods. So anyway, and I'm already thinking that guy had a weird looking camo and the back of his head looked like a like an ape. I mean, it was like a, it looked like a silverback gorilla, just as much as anything else. And, I'm, and I stopped right under that limb that that thing ducked under. I'm 6'2, and I wear a kind of a almost like a cowboy hat hat looking thing. And uh, I guess like an Indiana Jones looking hat, but it's all camo. And uh, I realized that that limb is still several inches above my head that I don't even think about ducking and that thing ducked way down to get under it. And that's when it went whoop, 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 whoop,
3: whoop.
1: and it done like that. And it started shaking the bushes. And oh my, I mean, here I go again. Every time I
3: whoop.
1: hang on, I'm covered in coattails I can't hardly tell. Every time I, every time I hear them, him do that in my brain, I get cold chills over and over and over every single time. But anyway, it sh- it it shakes the bushes, and I'm thinking, holy crap, what in the world was that? And I and I'm going and your brain's running 100 miles an hour. You know it wasn't a bear. A gorilla don't make any sense. The only thing that makes any sense, holy crap, is Bigfoot. And and that don't make no sense because yeah, i never met anybody who's seen a Bigfoot. So. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't sure where I was on Bigfoot is it, it, this, the thought intrigues me, but I think it, until you truly see one, you're not truly a believer. And then you're always questioning what you did see. Um, but I know what was in front of me. I've never seen anything like it before. And now it's instantly blended in with the woods, with the bushes that are shaking. And um, I'm just like, oh no! And I'm holding my shotgun, and my I'm right-handed, so you know I'm holding the, the the trigger the trigger and all is in my right hand. My left hand's got the stock, and I'm thinking, if this thing is a primate, that it thinks I'm looking aggressive. So I let go of my left hand, <clears throat> and I let the gun down more pointed, pointed towards the ground in my right hand. And I started backing up and I said, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm in your woods. I'm backing out. And I was really talking to it. Just like this right here. I'm, I'm leaving. It's your place. And, uh, I, I, I'm out of here. And I was backing up, backing up. And,
2: uh, you got a
1: nice place to hunt and, uh, I'm sorry. I trespassed on your property. And, uh, I, I was, See And I'm just, you know, making up jump as I get out. And, uh, and I did that, you know, probably to about 75 yards. And then I'd turn around and walk a little bit and I'd turn around. Um, I, I, I would, I felt like I was being followed the whole time. I never did catch it following me. Um, and I'm pretty stealthy in the woods, but I wasn't caring about stealth then. I was caring about getting myself out of there. Um, but I would walk pretty fast and then just kind of get behind the tree and turn around and, you know, just barely let an eyeball look back down, down the trail to see if I could see it coming and I never could see anything, but I just felt like I was followed the whole entire time. And it took me about an hour and a half to get back to the truck somewhere around in that time. And boy, that, that sure was a good looking truck when I, when I got to it, um, I got in there and I filled out of there pretty good. But, um, that was my encounter and, uh, it was close when it, when it was, when I got up from behind that tree, I had never heard it make a sound. Um, and, and there he was. And I believe he was around, I think he may have jumped back a tad actually thinking about it. Um, but, but he was maybe 11 yards away, um, not far. Um, and he, he. but I think that he thought I was a hen. What well, I really think, totally, I think he, he heard that gobble gobble, that gobbler gobble. And he may have already been interested in that bird. And he didn't know, he didn't realize I was there, I don't think. And is that bird's coming to me? He knows. He's seen turkeys work. So he knows, okay, this hen's going to be going towards that gobbler. That gobbler's going to be coming towards that hen a little bit, and I'm going to get him. And so I think he was laying in wait for that gobbler or the hen, whichever one came up. And I think he might have messed up a little bit. It might have been when that thing gobbled at me again. I don't know. Um, But – Hey, Daryl, you would
4: also mention another odd situation when just before, kind of leading up to when you, just before you saw the creature, that you heard a gobble, gobble, and then all of a sudden you heard one like 90 degrees in a different direction.
1: Well, that was him. Yeah, that was the gobbler that, I think he ran my gobbler off. That I think it was just one gobbler, but... Um, cause it was, it was coming to me and then it was 90 degrees away and a hundred yards away from where it should have been. Like he just took an about, you know, just turned and went to the other way. That's why, and that in the, in the, in Bigfoot kind of come from that direction. Um, and so I think that it, I think it run my bird off, but here's the hen over there still making noise. So I think he was going to sneak up and thought I was a hen thank god i called loud and aggressive to make that other gobble that gobbler gobble because if i didn't hear gobble i'd still been sitting there and i believe he would have went right behind that tree and grabbed something and when he and he would've probably would have grabbed me and uh it have been a bad day right there um so like i said when that bird gobbled i'm like well ain't no need me sitting here you know ain't calling him back from that And that's when I jumped up, but, uh, I don't think he was, I I do believe they probably got the capability of calling them. Um, but I don't, I don't think he was making a, a turkey sound. I don't believe he was, it was him gobbling. It was, I believe it was a full blown national forest, uh, Eastern that was, that was gobbling to me that morning. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think he, I think he run my bird off and, uh, but I think he was planning on getting one of the two of them. And uh, so, yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, that was my question. I just, I thought that was interesting. Um, so it, it was actually the bird and not the creature that was.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. I don't, I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think it was the creature. I think that was the bird. If I, if you, if I told that differently the other day, I, I, I led you wrong. That wasn't what I was meaning. But. Um, it wouldn't be surprising because it—it's I mean, not that hard to sound like a hen. If you, I mean, they got vocalizations that they can do. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if they didn't sound like
3: uh, other
1: animals. I know you uh, owl call, uh, You do an owl call, and you can get a gobbler to gobble. You're not going to get him to come to it, but you can know where he's at. And uh, so you know, it's a, that's a—that's what we do. I mean, I, I'll make an owl call as a locator to not because once I start calling or once I start calling as a hen, I got to be careful what I do. If I move too fast, that ain't normal. If I, if I go across a Creek, that necessarily ain't normal. A lot of times I'll go to the edge of the Creek, but a lot of times they'll get hung up on creeks and rivers and stuff like that. So you kind of got to know a little bit about your prey to become the prey. If you know what I mean? Um, in, in your mind to know how they're going to act. And, um, it just makes you a better hunter. And so, I mean, they're, they, they're probably the best hunter there's ever been and absolutely the best hide and go seek champion there's ever been. And, uh, so they're, you know, I think I'm a pretty good woodsman. Hm. I don't hold a candle to that big boy. Um, I have I c I have actually on purpose just been in a good area and you got you know you just can't won't stay here. You kinda gotta cover some ground but move real slow and just kinda stop and move slow and stop and have had a squirrel step on my boot before. So you gotta be pretty pretty still to be able to pull that one off. But I don't believe I can be as quiet as that thing was sneaking up on me because my ears we're tuned in to hear the smallest of any noise uh, because I'm, I'm expecting to see my bird come up and they don't always come in gobbling and spitting and drumming and in, in full strut. Sometimes they sneak in, especially those national forest birds that's been shot at a time or two. So uh, how in the world that big thing could sneak up on me like that is, uh, <laughs> that's off to you, buddy. <laughs> All I got to say.
4: Well, you know, they're very intelligent. And, you know, it's fascinating. You're talking about the the national forest turkeys, these uh, native or national or wild turkeys, rather, and how intelligent they are, and so how much more intelligent this creature must be. And now, did you say it was actually shaking the bush and making that kind of a sound?
1: Yes, yes, yes. And that was... (laughs) I mean, when you're standing it all happens, you know, really quick. And it's like, before that, as it went behind the bushes, I'm thinking, this is the weirdest guy I've ever seen. And, I mean, not only beside was he huge. And then that's when I realized I was standing under that limb. But nobody in their right mind is going to be behind a bush, shaking it, and, and going, hoo, hoo. Like that. I mean, it was a real big, big sound, and yeah, more like that. And um, just that's when just your brain is about to explode. Going, what is this? And and I had already went. Where's your gun? You know, I'd realized he didn't have a gun right off the bat, and I'm like, where's your gun? Nobody's down there walking around, especially there. Uh, I mean, you take uh, an hour and a half to get to a ve- to a vehicle from anywhere. Nobody's gonna be walking around through there during that time of the year, with a with a in a ghillie suit or something, with no gun or no camera or nothing, just walking around. Uh, I I wasn't buying that. And um, but then when it started doing all that, it definitely was like, okay, this this is this is not anything that uh, I've ever. Come across before.
4: How far away um, from that bush were you when it sort of shaken?
1: Oh, I was pretty close. I was probably uh, ten feet from that Ooh. bush, and I couldn't see couldn't see it at all. Um, of course, I, I'm in the bottom, and it, you know the sun comes through in spots. You know, and uh, which adds to the camouflage of anything. You know, if you got sun coming in, some sun and some shade. It's it's great camo, you know. Even if you don't have on camo, unless you got on, you know, something bright, but it just blended in so well. But as he as he went under, because I got a good look at it when it, you know, ducked and went under that tree, it was like he had a crick in his neck or something. He didn't, you know, he didn't duck his head. He ducked, ducked shoulder and head, and kind of just looked stiff, except for his, you know, his his arms were very fluid and his legs were very fluid, but his his upper torso and head and all kind of looked like it was all hooked together like you had a, you know, I've had a crick in my neck before and, you know, turn around and kind of do your whole body, you know. And it was kind of that way when he ducked up under that limb and that limb didn't deserve to be ducked under. That limb was...
4: Well, you know, so it's a lot bigger than you anticipated or thought it was. Right. And, you know, we talked a little bit about yesterday your your encounter uh, all the details in it have a lot of the elements that we see you know we see a lot of repeating patterns there um the shaking bush uh will you've you've experienced that
2: once oh yeah same thing except i got growled at. oh wow i i
1: don't know i'm glad he didn't growl I, uh, what he was, I, you know, I think what he was telling me is get out of here. This is mine. Um,
2: That's kind of the impression I got, it, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, but it wasn't, it was very defensive. It wasn't aggressive, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, now, had I not got out of there, or had I kept holding that stick that way, it might have it might have been more, uh, ag- more aggressive and defense. You know, turning it up a little bit, like, "Hey, buddy, I meant get out of here," you know, and then start doing something different. But it was a it was a warning, and I quickly heated, <laughs> I quickly heated that warning. Um, but uh, you know, it didn't like <clears throat> I know, I know I shocked it. It was not expecting the human to come up from there. Uh, but I didn't smell anything. I have replayed that part, too. And I, I didn't smell anything. Of course, the swamp smells kind of flame, yeah. Um But like I, said, I, I yeah, had I no think the,
4: idea. I think the whole odor matter. thing is, uh, I think that's just in a very few. Will, you've said it's like, what? Most,
2: uh, most often people don't smell anything. I didn't smell anything standing, you know. Fifteen feet or so from two of them. Wow! Mm. I can't.
1: It was so he was behind. Yours was behind the bushes too, and growled at
2: you? One. Well, there were two situations. The first uh, encounter was I walked in on one of them, and then another one came out from behind some brush behind me, uh, and it wasn't very far from that spot. You know, two three hundred feet probably. Well, a little bit more maybe three, 400 feet. Um, I was going up a neighbor's driveway along a tree line and there was a big stand of blackberry bushes and, and about, it was probably 10, 10 feet or so, maybe a little more. Uh, the whole blackberry bushes started shaking and this thing growled and I turned around and made a hasty retreat. Oh. Didn't go back up that mm. road.
1: No, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> You can have the blackberries. I'll be bringing some blackberry jelly. That's right. Let me get out
3: of
1: here. <laughs> wow. As, but there was another one behind you at the same, like, there was two at that time?
2: Uh, yeah, when I uh, when I had my encounter, I, there were two of them. Hmm. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah. I don't well, know if this
1: was alone. He was the only one that I saw.
4: Well, you know what, Daryl, in that situation, you know what one Bigfoot is? It's one too many.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's about the truth. Um, yeah, I, I've hunted that area since. Um, luckily, shortly after that time, I, I got to start hunting private property and, uh, you know, could hunt that with pretty, pretty good ease, but... Um, that hunt, that land went up for sale in my private land. And I had to go back to this public land that I hunted, um, in the past. And I hate to admit it, but I'm a little bit nervous about going in there. And, um, I even hunted it some this year, but I just, I've never hunted it with the ease and comfort, uh, that I did prior to, um, seeing that, especially hunting by myself. And I hunted by myself a lot. Um, used to go, with my son but he's got older and not 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 around as much um, but uh, and during all of the time that he was hunting was on uh, private land, so um yeah, it did makes me nervous hunting down there by myself. I did go back down there a couple of weeks after that on purpose, and um, because I just wanted to see if I could find any tracks because. You know, the people you talk to, you don't want to tell nobody. Everybody, you know, thinks you're crazy, and uh, you know, they people are are more like. And you probably know it too, that you're a trustworthy person, and you you say, I, you know, I, I don't know what I saw, I know what I didn't see. The only thing that it adds up to be was a bigfoot, and they're like, you know, they don't believe bigfoot they believe you saw something and you know, so they don't, they don't say you didn't see something, but they it's hard for them to admit that they believe you saw Bigfoot. And it's even hard for your own mind to say that. Um, but I went down there a couple of weeks later looking around and I actually found the same, you know, the same area and it's not an area I'd ever been to. Um, like I said, it's just kind of a strange little area. And, um, I don't know why it feels strange, but the word I've used is enchanted. It's just, it's different. Um, but uh, there was a tree there. And, um, this is so, so weird. There's a tree there. Looks, you ever seen a skinny guy that had a, a real pot belly, but he was skinny? A tree looked like that. And I think it was, I don't remember if it was a pine tree or what, but there was a tree that was like that. It wasn't that big around. It's probably probably... Uh, about eight inches in diameter, I guess. And uh, it went up and it had that thing, almost like a sea in it, and in, in the tree. And um, under it was a big, giant pile of crap. And I'm going, wow, I don't know what this is. And I know what coyote looks like, fox looks like, dog. And this didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before. It it almost looked like a mixture between fox and coyote and human. Um, Had some hair in it. Had like some berries, maybe blackberries and some persimmon-looking seeds in it and junk, but was huge. (laughs) I would have hated to have to pass that thing, Uh, but it was long, but it was... uh, uh, probably big around as a racquetball ball, maybe almost a tennis ball uh, size. And it was, you know, kind of piled up, but if, if I'd have held on, so I held on to that limb and bent over. And if you'd have, it sounds weird, but if you'd have put a plumb bob straight out of my butt, it wouldn't have landed right there. It was about six inches behind that. So, I'm an engineer by trade, so everything I do, I mean, so I'm all about scale and, you know, making the math work. If I was way bigger, then it would have been directly over that if that thing would have held onto that tree and kind of done its deal, and that's where it would have landed. I wish I'd had a plastic bag. It's something I could have put that in and had it sent off, but I didn't. I said, I ain't putting that in my pocket. Um, but it wasn't real old. Uh, it wasn't brand new but it wasn't real old and uh, never found any tracks, but I, I did see that and I'm like, well, I guess he's still down here, but uh, I, that's the last time I ever saw anything out of it. They they had done some logging already and then they've done some more since then and now uh, there's a bunch of people that ride horses down through there um, right along the river. I don't know if they may have seen anything or not, um, that don't mean it hadn't seen them. Uh, I just believe it's really good at looking and not being seen. Well,
4: that was a uh, question I had: is have you heard any any other accounts or oh, I don't want to say legends, but any other stories or have other people said, "Hey, you know what? Uh, you know, we've seen this thing here," or because you had that museum, and I I was kind of interested that they had one. How far is the museum from this area or your house or, you know?
1: Oh, it's pretty far up. The museum is up in LJ, and it's in North Georgia. I'm in, uh, I'm below Atlanta, about 30 miles, and it's about 40 miles. So it's probably, I'm just throwing a wild number out there, probably about 200, a little over 200 miles away. but you know, it's there was other sightings down in there. I was listening to, to uh, Dixie Cryptid one time, and there was a guy talking, and man, he was sound like very near where I was at, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that guy. He, he he was actually interviewed. I can't remember his name. He was he was he's a preacher. I think he does some preaching. He was a heat and air guy. And uh, he'd he'd had an encounter down in that in that area too, um, but um, no. I did have one guy that I worked with that he knew somebody that had seen something down in the, down there too, and they were laughing. And he's a, and that guy's a pretty good sized guy too. I'm 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 six two, I think I've shrunk some since I've got older. But I used to be six too. I think I'm about six. <laughs> This is over six foot now, maybe six one, but, um, you know, about 300 pounds. And, uh, and there was another guy that was about that same size that had a store. And he says, Oh, what it is, is, y'all two big old guys went in there and saw each other and got spooked. But I don't know who that guy was. I never, I never heard the tale and he didn't tell, but he, but the guy that I had worked with then, you know, he had said that somebody else had said they had an encounter down in that part of the woods but um i don't know like i said i it's not anywhere you i only went down there just to hunt and you know you hunt and you leave and you know you're not you don't, you don't hang around down there you just you just leave so i don't hear any local stories i guess um you know from from anything down there because you drive in you hunt, you drive out you're not I don't camp down there or anything to hear any local legends
4: well listen Daryl, I really appreciate this Uh, this has just been an absolutely fascinating encounter you got two of them and um, just really appreciate you taking the time to give us your information we're just about out of time Um, any uh, questions for us before we wrap this up um no, not really.
1: Uh, it's it's good that you know things like th- there's avenues for people to tell their story because
3: <laughs> you
1: keep it bottled up inside, and you know what you saw, and you don't just go blabbing it to everybody because you know, like I said, they you know I be- they believe that I believe I saw something. They don't necessarily believe that I saw what I saw. And so they don't want to just laugh right in your face, but you know, you get to talking to people that's had the same experience and, and we've got a, we've there's a kinship there. This, this rare. And, um, it gives us an opportunity to, to, to tell our story and other people who agree really, yes, you know, that's exactly what happened to me. And, and, you know, it's just, it validates, what you've been replaying in your mind a hundred times, and,
2: and, that's, and exactly uh, it, that's exactly correct. That's exactly correct, yeah. Aaron. and you know what? A lot of people I get contacted a lot, and lots of people who would never talk about or haven't talked about what they experienced will listen to what people like you've said, or what I tell, or what anybody else you know that's been on the show says, and and they feel kind of vindicated, you know.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I'm in my trailer now. I do woodwork. I turn wood. I a lot of pins and stuff, and I'll typically turn on uh, Dixie Cryptid and listen to Cam read stories. He's got a good voice, and, and I'm going to start listening to yours because yours is longer. Um, and <laughs> I didn't even know it was out there. But I'm usually out here about three hours, so I'm going to start listening to yours too because um, it's, you know, people's own account. Um And, you know, I I, I like to hear Cam, but it's it's a written thing that somebody's written. Sometimes he'll interview, uh, but I like to hear the interview and, you know, to hear the fluctuation in people's voice. And, you know, sometimes you can just tell when people are telling the truth or not. And
2: I've, you know,
1: I've never been accused of not telling the truth. It's funny. One time when I was in junior high, I was really strong. I picked up the coach's car and turned it around, set it sideways in parking, in the parking, uh, spot there. And it wasn't nothing but a Volkswagen rabbit. So it wasn't that heavy. And, um, so <laughs> it wasn't too long. Daryl Johnson report to the office. Daryl was like, oh boy, here we go. So I go in and the principal's going, did you move coach's car? I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, who helps you? I said, nobody. He said, don't tell me that, Darrell. I said, no, I did it myself. He said, you're telling me you picked up that car and you turned it sideways in that parking spot. Yes, sir. He said, well, then you ought to be able to put it back. I said, yeah. I said, um, there was a lot of people out there, but nobody helped. And nobody did it because I was proving I could do it by myself. He said, okay. So he, he calls up a lot of the male teachers and that coach. And so here we all go. A little march. They all will march out there. And I picked the back end of the car up, and I put it right back in the parking spot like it was supposed to be. And he just shook his head, and he goes, good night. And so it's just kind of funny, but he knew I wasn't lying. You know, but it's like, this doesn't seem possible, but do it again, and that way I know you weren't lying. So uh, I had to do the same thing when I tore a phone book in half in school. Um, tore a phone book in half, and the teacher, I was in the middle of it. But people were, some was betting I could, and some was betting I couldn't. And uh, that's back when they were thick, big old, thick, fat phone books. They ain't that hard once you get the back book of them. So anyway, I'm halfway through it, and the teacher walks in. And he said, put that down. And I said, I can't. And he said, I said, put it down. And I said, I can't. I said, if I don't, it's going to be worse. I'll just finish it and get, and, you know, deal with it. So and I finally got it ripped in half, and everybody was, yeah. And it was disturbing the class. He said, "Go to the office and and take that with you." I said, "Yes, sir." So I go walking into the principal's office. I wasn't a bad guy. He said, "What are you doing in here?" I said, "This." He said, "Good night." He said, "What's that do? What's the deal with that?" And I says, "I tore it in half and disrupted the class." He said, "You did that? I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "He reached in his drawer and he pulled out another one." He said, "Do this one."
3: I said, "All right, my hand's
1: kind of tired now, but I could probably do it." So I worked at it a second and I finally got it tore too. And he, he shook his head and he said, go back to class now like you got in trouble. I said, all right. <laughs> so it was the end of that. But, um, I said, I've never, you know, sometimes the tail seems tall, but that don't mean it's not true. Um, and that's the case here. Um, and I didn't tell anything it wasn't true. Um, some things I don't understand, but I know what I, I know what my eyes saw and, uh, it was Darrell, an
4: experience 100%. We know that you, what you told us is true. It's, it it has all the hallmarks of a uh, accurate and true story. So um, but stay in touch with us if you would. And by the way, yeah. Cam's a good guy. Uh, Dixie Cryptid ah. is one of our
2: favorites. Absolutely. So. And Daryl, we got your yeah, email I, so I can I can send you some okay. pictures of some interesting things.
1: Oh man, that'd be awesome! I'd love that. I'd love that. You bet. Um, yeah, because it's. I'm glad I didn't see it in the face. I think if I saw it in the face, I, it, it would haunt me. Um, I, you know, I saw towards it, but I didn't. I didn't make out face. I think if I saw a face, it would. It would really get at me. Um, but I didn't see face. I, I saw shoulders, side, back of the head, and all that, but. Um, I didn't look him in the eye and I'm glad. So, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing that. It, I wouldn't mind seeing one again, but I, I would just, I'd rather be far off. I don't <laughs> want to be that close to you. <laughs> I, I heated this morning and I, and I, I'm minding. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother you again, big boy. You can have this spot, but, um, yeah, that's cool. I don't know that I'd want to camp out and you know, wait on one and call one up close, like, you know, to get the sounds like, you know, some of y'all guys do. It's not fun. Uh, (laughs) No, I wouldn't imagine. It's funny, like you hunt something, but you kind of hope you don't get one, you know? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, but I don't know. Everybody together, it would would be fun. But now my friend, he, he, he does that. The one that. I worked with him and he's the one who told me to go to the, um, Bigfoot museum. His name's John, real good guy. And, uh, he said, uh, yeah, you know, he's the, he's the first one I really told, um, about it at work. And, you know, he's, he had a Bigfoot sticker on his car, on his, in the back windshield. And, you know, I knew I could talk to him about it. And so he's, you know, he, he likes to go out and hunt and hunt for them and stuff like that. And, um, we were just riding up in the mountains to see the pretty leaves and, by the Bigfoot Museum, I'm like nah, i I meant to turn in here, you know, a couple years ago. So I did. I turned around and went back, and I sent him a message say, "Hey, I'm at the Bigfoot Museum." He said, "Well, tell David your story." So uh, after I was there, looking around a little while, I, I said, "Well, I guess I'll." Is David here? And he said, "No." So I told a worker, and uh, you know my story, and he's like, "Oh man, that's good." So he's like, "Can I get your number?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So David contacted me and then I guess David contacted y'all, so I guess um I guess it was a pretty decent story. But uh, I feel honored to be um you know uh to be on y'all's program and uh I hope your listeners enjoy it and um be kinda neat to see what the replies are.
2: Well Daryl, the honor is all ours.
1: Uh, well good.
2: All right, we got to wrap Indeed. up now, Daryl. So listen, you—I'll—I'll I'll be sending you some stuff. Um, you know, okay. and any any questions you have or just chatting, you know, let me know, and you know, I'll try to answer what I can. All
1: right.
2: All right, everyone. Yep. Sounds good. All righty, everyone. Stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, Mount St. Helens, about 1850. Agnes Louise Elliott, in the book, told by the pioneers, states that her father, Rock Duchenne, in charge of the Hudson's Bay post at Chinook at the mouth of the Columbia, firmly believed the story of the huge apes near Mount St. Helens. He went there to hunt once, and one of these ape men beckoned to him. He just turned and ran until he reached home. Been talking about wanting to get somebody in the mental health field on the show, and we're fortunate to have that today. So, Tom, would you like to introduce our very special guest? Yeah, absolutely, hey, Samantha. Welcome aboard. And
3: thanks, Will and Tom.
4: Yes, and I just now you work as a clinical a uh, mental health worker. Would, would would we call you a clinical psychologist or uh, uh, just a treatment provider?
5: So in Australia, so I'm a mental health social worker and potentially the equivalent where you are might be a licensed social worker, but we're trained in the psychological side of social work. Yeah.
4: Okay. And we were talking about this just before we came on the air, but um, you do deal with people that have been through uh, traumatic situations and you help them work through that and, and all that sort of thing, correct?
5: Absolutely, um, and I'm also trained in something called clinical neuropsychotherapy. So it's understanding how the nervous system is impacted by whatever's happening in our environment. And so, obviously, these sort of sightings, absolutely. Well, that's fit.
2: that's a great lead-in. Um, I guess the first thing, I, I, this is something you know that I've experienced with people for many, many years. I, I've been involved in this for almost fifty years now, so I've talked to literally thousands of people. Uh, and my own, and I'll use my own experience as an example. Um, but a lot of people, and, and it doesn't matter what walk of life they come from. It's sort of a, a universal experience or something they go through. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've talked to people who were, you know, very high level attorneys and, and, and just your average everyday, you know, worker. <clears throat> so, but, the, but it's universal The response. Um, so, and what I mean by that is, uh, and I'll go ahead and use my own example, you know, having grown up in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, um, you know, in the forests, my family hunted and fished, uh, we had livestock. There was, you know, I I was exposed to just about all the wildlife there was in in that region. So I had a pretty good foundation for what kinds of things to expect out in the forests. You know things to watch out for to avoid you know problems things like that uh, but when I was 14 we found footprints and, and it was exciting and everything uh, of these creatures you know the Sasquatch didn't know what it was never heard the word Bigfoot before uh, until a friend's father explained what he knew of it and of course you know when you're, you're that age unless you see something you see the animal you don't really it doesn't really lock into your mind you know you kind of have an idea and then you know we didn't see anything more so we got bored forgot about it. Two years later, I go into a tree line and step within 20 feet of one of these things. So you, if you picture machinery and somebody throwing a wrench into it, into this nice, smoothly operating machinery, you know, I walk into something that I have absolutely no foundation, you know, through my, you know, life experience to even, there's no concept for it. Um, I guess, what does that do to people, a situation like that?
5: Oh, that's incredible. Firstly, just to validate just how terrifying that must have been for you. And interestingly, you may not have even experienced it as terrifying. It's almost like time freezes and then the terror might come later, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, what we're talking about here is having, yeah, no frame of reference for something. And that includes... Um, you know, many sort of, you know, sightings because some people, um, I listen to a lot of obviously this Raylene Yowie research, um, well, there are thousands and there's all different types. They're not all just Yowies, they're all, all, all different things. You can't even, so even people who understand Yowies or Bigfoot, then they see something else that's nothing like that. Where do you go with that one? It's realising the world isn't really what we think it is. It's actually full of all sorts of things. Um, but then... Where do you go once you actually have that? And I think that's the key, is that if you can't come back to community and share, because we are a sharing creature, your experience and what's happened, this is what can really impact our psychological state. Because now, now we're made to kind of feel like there's something maybe wrong with us. Maybe you really didn't see what you think you saw. Those sorts of things come up. Do you actually recall your experience, Will, what actually happened for you? At that moment, when you saw this being?
2: You know, it hap- everything happens so quickly. And and I tell people that, you know, there were, and it's, it's funny to look at yourself in that light. Uh, all these thoughts, you know, you, th- you know, we kind of think in a linear fashion, right? Or at least we think we do, until something like that happens. And then your brain does some kind of miraculous thing where there's like multiple things going on at the same time. Uh, at least that's the only way I can relate it where I I'm in shock. I stopped, I see this thing, it sees me, it stops moving. It was moving leaves around with its right foot and it stopped moving and I stopped moving and we just kind of stared at each other. And I mean, you have the, I had the feeling, I mean, I was, I was terrified. Uh, even to this day, after all these years, that was 1974. So after all these years, occasionally I will still have nightmares about that incident. Um, and you know, then it's like, you know, not just terror, but what is this? My brain is trying to grapple with it. It's trying to fill in the blanks and, and there aren't any answers there. Then I remembered what, you know, my friend's dad told us two years before and I thought, Oh, that must be one of the things that made the footprints. So then I'm thinking at the same time, how am I going to get out of this situation? Because this thing is massive. It's, you know, it's eight feet tall, easily, you know, 800 to a thousand pounds. And I have no idea what it's going to do. It was not a friendly uh, encounter and it wasn't, I mean, didn't do anything aggressive, but it wasn't any sort of, I mean, I didn't get the feeling at all. There was any sort of friendliness there. So I thought, well, I've got a rifle in my hands because I was expecting a small animal, you know, raccoon or skunk or something like that. So I thought, well, maybe if I shoot in the air, it'll, it'll scare it off. So I shot in the air and didn't move. And then from my right rear, I hear a noise behind some brush and here comes another one walking out and it walks over and stands to the next one. And I I took off running. I mean, I just, you know, the flight or flight mechanism kicked in and, and I just took off running, hoping it wasn't breathing down my neck.
5: And thankfully, it wasn't. So it didn't chase
2: you. No, no, neither one of them did. But That's you know, incredible. you know, we didn't. I didn't tell my parents or anybody because they had all made fun of us for finding the footprints two years before. So I got on the phone and I called my friend John, who lived nearby, and and a group of us met at first light at my house the next morning with our hunting rifles, and we tracked them for oh geez, a couple hours till the sun came out. And it was real frosty. The tracks were in the frost, you know, in the, in the field grass and everything. So we kind of lost the trail after the sun did that, warmed the tra- uh, frost up, but, uh, melted the frost. <clears throat> but, uh, so I didn't really talk about it. I mean, I talked to my, a couple of my friends, you know, we kept it quiet. We discussed it. Um, and it wasn't, I probably would have never talked about it openly, except that the following summer. Uh, and I didn't know this friend of mine wrote to John Green in in British Columbia, Canada, uh, who was, you know, the, one of the leading experts at the time in the world on the subject. Uh, and he and Renee DeHinden, when DeHinden came to my house and they invite, and he invited me to camp where I met Green and, and some other people there. So, you know, the fact that I got to talk to people who were the, the leading people in the world and, and they accepted what I told them. Made me feel okay to talk about it, and I kind of was able to incorporate that into my frame of reference.
5: And there it is. That's that community seeking. Everything you kind of described there, um, even including your friend's help seeking behavior. Like something pushed him enough to reach out and try to find someone who knew something, because that's what we're driven to do—to to seek community, to find a capacity to share. Because this is a neuro—well, a neurological concept is that the right hemispheres of our brain are driven to connect with other people. And when you're forbidden from doing that through social shaming or, or any number of things, even your own family just not being supportive, that, that can really impact the way our brain develops, the way we react to stressors or our threat appraisal system in the future and that kind of thing. For, for example, people who go hiking a lot then they have one of these events, never ever do they go hiking again. That's an absolute shame because their quality of life diminishes because they're not able to share and find meaning and, and find that, like I was saying before, that reference point. We, we've got to develop the reference. These things obviously exist. Uh, there's just too many, too many sightings, too many encounters and too much um, evidence. and If people don't get to share, we don't get to build that library, that knowledge bank. So it's essential that people share which is why I think it's a double-pronged approach in how we go about this. You need counsellors like myself because I'm trained to talk with the person about their experience. And then you've got researchers like yourself who are trained to actually understand what's actually going on in the environment so you understand all that way better than I could ever understand it. And then we have a little bit of that community um, growth, I guess, from that perspective. What I'm noticing is that you guys have been around a lot longer than saying, my people, I just decided to come forward because I love these stories, and then I started actually feeling quite, um, oh, okay, I can't think of the word. I felt really put off every time I listened to these stories and then towards the end the, the people say, oh, yeah, I've been on antidepressants now and, and oh, yeah, I don't ever hike anymore, I just make sure I stay away and then they have a little giggle, sort of laugh it off, nervous laughter. I just said to my husband, this is not okay. This, this Why is there a gap in support? and psychological assessment you know assistance for adjustment because we're delineating the difference and this is probably crucial for people to understand we're not actually talking about mental illness people think that you've got some mental illness of some sort if you need to seek a counselor it's just not true psychological adjustment is a natural process in our life when we come across something you know that overthrows your capacity to cope you no know, even being in a car crash that's really confronting or something like that, you know, hasn't happened before. You might need a little bit of extra help. It's the same thing for what you're talking about, except it's, you know, really punched up a level because we're talking about beings that allegedly aren't meant to exist. That, that, that's confronting from a terror level.
2: It is. And and I'll tell you, you know, I, I understand the feeling of not wanting to go in the woods again, Because, you know, I kind of wish I would have never, you know, experienced that because I was really, you know, loved being out in the forest. And, you know, from then on it was, it was different. I mean, I was always feeling, even to this day, feeling like I'm kind of looking over my shoulder all the time. Um, that's one aspect of it. And the other one, I think people have a hard time coming forward because there's so much garbage in the subject floating around out there. Uh, by, and it's put out there by people who really don't know what they're talking about with the subject so that when people see something, I mean, you know, of course the media muddied the waters early on when this got to be kind of widespread knowledge that, that people were seeing these things, uh, you know, from the late fifties on and, um, that's part of it. But, um, here, and here's something, here's an interesting part of this too. You know, when people talk about photographs of the creatures, and and it's kind of the opposite of what people would think. I've got a number of people that have legitimate photographs of the creatures. Want nothing to do with talking about it. They don't want to go out publicly with them. In some cases, they even deny what's in the pictures, even though they're crystal clear. Whereas the other people who don't have anything, they're the first first ones that run to social media and and YouTube, etc., And, and there's really nothing or it's hoaxed what they have. Yeah. So a lot of those are barriers to, you know, people talking about their experiences and getting it out of their system.
4: You know, well, one of the things that we've encountered a lot, we we get it all the time. We get it almost with every episode with every witness. And that is uh, a sense of relief and this is the first time, you know, when they're talking to us, this is the first time they've had somebody they they can share this with where there's not that hurdle to get over. of Well, I got to try to convince you that what I saw was real. And they have, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a group that's very accepting of their uh, encounter.
2: You know, Daryl, that's on, uh, was on the recent show we had, Um, I I got a message from a coworker of his and, and as you know, he hadn't talked about his account very much. And, um, in fact, I think we were the first ones he talked to publicly about it, but, uh, the coworker expressed, you know, his thanks for uh, allowing, you know, us to talk to Daryl on the show. And he says when Daryl would tell him the story, he could see Daryl get goosebumps on his arms, you know, reliving it. Yeah so, you know it's legitimate when, when those autonomic responses occur.
5: Absolutely. Yep. And and I, I pick up on that. And this this is the thing. When I listen to podcasts, um, there's yeah, you can hear it. I can hear it in people's voices. I'm listening for intonation, prosody, you know, gaps in what they're saying, pauses, all those sorts of things. Uh, and most obviously crying people tear up or they say they have goosebumps you can hear them pause and this is you're right that's part of post-traumatic stress is one of the three categories we look at is re-experiencing phenomena so the brain is acting as if it's happening right now and that again is evidence that there's been no support or assistance to help integrate that experience into your narrative because we're a bio-autographical creature, we, we have an ongoing story in our head and we, we can, you know, add detail to it or take detail away and all that sort of thing. But for something like this, if your first inclination is you must suppress it in the first place, already it's, it's a battle when you come and see a counsellor to try to actually find the scope of what's happened here and what it means for you and what it means for you living. Because to live on a planet that we have to share with these beings, that... May or may not be benevolent or malevolent. We just don't know enough about it. But yeah, your, our brains are going to uh, likely expect it's happening all over again. And you're right, that's an issue in in terms of sharing. Some people just will not. They don't want to go through it again.
2: Yeah, there there. Are, I I used to figure. Oh, this was years ago, the '90s. I, at that time, I figured there were about twenty people for every one uh, when well, the one person who would talk about their experience. There were probably twenty who would never talk about their experiences.
5: Yeah, that's massive.
2: And that's, you know, and and that was a drop in the bucket, I think, in in the area I lived in. Um,
5: Yeah, that's phenomenal, isn't it? That's a a very large number because you could easily just imagine, imagine if everyone was able to share and we had an inventory of knowledge and awareness, you would, it, it would change your experience of the planet because we're all grasping at the moment you know for information and trying to understand i
2: I hate to use the example but you know up to this point you know having had the experiences myself and and i had another one after that one and some indirect ones but um uh when i talk to people i'll tell them you know what i experienced and and it's almost like you know alcoholics anonymous i I hate that example but it works it's a similar kind of a thing it's sort of like you know, it's difficult for somebody to tell somebody about what happened if they hadn't had some kind of experience themselves. Um, and I think that's, like you said, because there isn't a support system yet out there of accepting, you know, somebody for what they're saying.
4: Well, and I'm just going to jump in. Not only there's, there's not a support system for accepting, but there's large-scale uh, rejection. You know, scoffing—excuse me—scoffing and rejection of you and as a person, and so they just people tend to kind of crawl back into their shell and and you know clam up about it. I just want to ask a quick question to Samantha: in in your experience, are there long-term negative effects for people that keep any kind of a trauma? Not you know not, not just this one, but any kind of a trauma like this bottled up and not sharing it?
5: I would say my short answer is yes. Um, and it, But it's very complex. Um, but, yes, there is, because um, as, you know, leaders in trauma like Bessel van der Kolk, for example, he talks about the body keeping the score. Any stress that you suppress will come out in your body some somehow, some way, someday. So... You can have the psychological pain, but you will also develop some sort of physical pain because when you're physically withholding, like, you know, you're not even, like I said, not even going out hiking anymore, you're not even doing things, it will just come out in the body somehow. But it's, again, the reason it does that is because it wants to be expressed. So, so the answer is you're right, you do have to share. I think... This is a thing, I think, with counselling, and if you have a counsellor, because what you were saying before, I, I don't have any personal experience with a yowie. Um, I have some other, other experiences that are odd, um, which I won't get into here, but because I'm so open to the fact that we don't know hardly anything about anything on this planet, least of all their own bodies. I mean, half of the work I do in counselling is teaching people about their own brain, their own nervous system, their bodies, understanding the psyche, once you start having some skills, because they should teach this stuff at school. You know what I mean? We're not equipped even to even understand ourselves, let alone everything around us. Um, There's a bit of a tangent, but that that is kind of what we're doing in in counselling is we're building up people's capacity to to face and tolerate what's actually happened. Because the irony is when you start sharing with somebody and you have a bit of back and forward and that kind of thing, it's a non-judgmental, safe, holding environment, other pieces of information or pieces of the puzzle start coming to the surface, so you actually start finding more um, bits of inventory or stimulus or whatever that you've you've kept within that you completely forgot or disregarded. But it can start coming out, and then that that itself can actually start piecing the picture together in a more co- coherent fashion, so that you can deal with it in a you know a better way. But you don't get the chance if you don't ever get to share that with anyone, least of all a trained counselor.
2: You know, I noticed something along those lines when I wrote my first book. And uh, I wrote my account in there, and, and then uh, somebody asked me a question about it years afterwards. And I went back and re-looked at it, and I thought, wow, I didn't say a whole lot in that. So I, I rewrote it, and, and I went through in my mind step by step and and a lot of things came out that I just kind of did the flyby, you know, when I wrote it the first time. And I just kind of wonder if I wasn't suppressing some of that information, you know.
5: It, it sounds like it likely, and and it's for a good reason. It's because it's absolutely confronting, and the brain—it's trying to protect us. It's it's a very smart contraption. It's trying to actually do its very best to defend from anything that might you know, topple us over. So, of course, it's going to fragment. Um, Now, it does that mechanically, but it's also, it's just a smart subconscious um, capacity that humans have. And we see it all the time, again, like with anything, any kind of traumatic event, slowly over time, people's memories start becoming more whole because they're starting to share a bit more, more memories sort of coming back. But it's more you're actually building your skills and your capacity to cope to withstand what wants to come out. So, and that equals safety. Obviously, you must have started feeling a lot more safe, Will, for your, your brain to be able to go, all right, I'll give you the next piece of the puzzle.
2: Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that came from, you know, talking to so many people, you know, over, all, over time. And, and and it really helped, you know, to kind of sit, be able to sit back and say, okay, now let me get that, let me sit down and, and kind of get to the nuts and bolts here.
5: That's right. And if, if there's a, a really uh, a traumatic aspect of the event, because obviously we've all read and heard a range, there's a range of, you know, sightings and encounters. Some are unbelievably confronting, like what you've described, Will, through to, you know, someone just hearing a, a weird howl, you know, while they're camping somewhere. Just one noise, it was a weird howl, didn't sound like anything they know before. They've been camping there for years. But it stands out in their their consciousness. They're like, mm You know, their their intuition is saying, no, that's off. I don't know what that's about. So it's not traumatising per se, but it it stood out enough to go, hang on, I don't like this. Um, I think with the traumatic aspect, that does require, yeah, some experienced counsellor support in terms of when, when, for example, you do post-traumatic stress, um, well, it's, no, I'm not going to say any particular therapies, but when you're doing a therapy where you are just trying to desensitise and you're trying to integrate the different stimulus that's occurred, as you're gently building the person's capacity to cope with whatever stimulus is kind of coming out, but that's where sometimes you reveal some really interesting aspects that might actually be, uh, they invoke curiosity, is kind of what I'm getting at. And, And that's where we actually need to expand those parts. And sometimes I might spend a whole session with somebody on one little aspect that came out that they never considered before. And then it can, now it changes the story. It, in the moment, will change your experience to the whole experience. Because your memories aren't the experience. Your memories have a life of their own. So you're experiencing your memory of an experience. So it gets a bit tricky, but this is why, yeah, if you can start actually working through some of the details of what's happened and, again, meaning-making, finding sense in it, because the fact is you did live, you know what I mean? It's one of those things, sometimes that's the part that's, it, it's incomprehensible. How did I live? Why aren't I dead that's, after what I was confronted with? It's so, it's unfathomable, but it's a fact because you're here, you're here to tell the story. That's
2: right. I didn't become the ham sandwich.
5: <laughs> that's it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: You know,
4: um, Samantha, you talk about that, that funny scream and that how my wife and I were camping a few years ago. And, um, and I, you know, I knew about the topic, but I hadn't, hadn't encountered one, you know, directly. But late in the afternoon, and I told Will about this, you know, several times, that we're sitting there and it's, we're at a very, very remote area <clears throat> of the Pacific Cascades, Oregon Cascades. And, you know, we, we heard that howl. And it went on for about seven minutes. And at that point, I just said, well, we're, um, we're going home.
5: Yeah. We're, not, <laughs> yeah. we're not sticking around
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah and and my query is what is that what is that within us that gives us a sense of decision making in that moment with no other evidence no other facts nothing else and yet that, that caused you to make a decision to leave
3: yeah, well, I think it's essential
5: yeah, exactly it's essential that we get to understand that and make friends with that and to to a lesser degree, it's almost the same as not sharing. To a, to a lesser degree, people are still trying to preserve some part of themselves by not sharing with others because of the ridicule or the shaming and that kind of thing. Whereas, I, yeah, I would, I just want to strongly encourage people, please just come forward and talk to a researcher like yourself or a counsellor like myself, someone who identifies as being open to any of this anomalous phenomena or anything that's out there. Because you'll be surprised at how much different you'll feel after, you know, just a one-hour connection point. Just, just describing something as simple as that, uh, hearing a sound, and it might cause you to make a decision to leave. That's excellent um, intuition there.
4: Yeah, it's, you know, and we've, we have people that we, um, I don't want to say we work with, but people that are kind of loosely associated with us that are former combat vets. And they've told and they've dealt with, dealt with these creatures, um, you know, very closely. And they said that <clears throat> the combat experience pales in comparison to the experience of dealing with these creatures. It's it's almost like when you have a face to face, like what Will was talking about. It's and I've never been in combat, so I have no uh, context for that. But you get like an instant PTSD that stays with you for years, if not, you know, not your lifetime.
2: Well, you know what it is Tom where we're taught from a very early age that we're the top of the food chain, you know we' that we're the top of everything on the planet. And when you stand in front of one of these things, you realize instantly uh, you were not the top of the food chain. and and that has a huge impact on you.
4: It does. And I think you could be standing in front of a grizzly bear or a mountain lion and you're going to be terrified but it's not the same it no i've
2: not I've, been, different. I've been i've been face to face with bear and, and it was completely different feeling not even in the same category yeah yeah being
4: in front of being you know and you know my encounter it was, it was very brief these things move speed of light but i've i've been around bears and and i've not been around mountain lions but um yeah, a bear encounter, I was very, very scared I had my 30 odd six <clears throat> and ready to go. I wanted something heavier than that but but mm. um, something about being around these things just it's totally different. yeah very very it, it's it's deeper. It's like every every molecule, every strand of DNA is saturated with uh, a sense of anxiety. Any thoughts around that, Tom, about why that might be? Um, I'm not, I, you know, I've, I, I have thought about this a lot. I think about it to this day. I try to try to sort that out. And it's the, what we're dealing with. You know, I am convinced and I think Will's convinced. Well, so I know Will's convinced. It's not an animal. It's something else. And it's highly intelligent. So now we're dealing with something that's on a par with us, parallel to us as far as intellect and and that sort of thing. But there's a, um, I'll I'll just say it, you know, there's a malevolence about these things. And so you got something that's very, very malevolent and very, very intelligent and very crafty and cunning. Um, And that's, you know, I think that's part of it right there. And, like Will says, we don't want to be a ham sandwich.
5: <laughs> right, that's right. And that's why I was wondering about that experience of, because what you're describing is, well, it's existential terror. So the terror of a bear, it's kind of different because that's a known quantity. And yeah. you, can, you can kind of understand theory of mind with a bear even. We can understand what its intentions might be, whereas this other being, we, how can we ever understand its intention? We don't know what it's what it wants with us or not with us. But why did it let we walk away that day? Two of them. It's just it's just intriguing. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Especially the more I hear from people, you go down the rabbit hole even deeper. And and I'll use an example. Tom, remember we interviewed Carol in Missouri twice, and she told us the one part. And like I said, I've done this for so long. Just when you think you've heard everything, you know, I was sitting here and, and she was talking and, and my jaw just fell open. Uh, at one point she talked about uh, a lady who came and talked to her, a neighbor. And and, and the gist of it was that uh, one of these creatures had actually hit her in the head, knocked her out. Uh, she was not very long. She woke up and the creature was standing over her. She passed out briefly again. And when she woke up the next time, Uh, the thing that opened her midsection was eating her small intestines in front of her.
5: Holy mackerel.
2: So, and that's not an isolated incident, where that type of incident. I mean, I've heard uh, when Tom talked about malevolent uh, intentions, uh, and and it goes back historically, I mean, uh, with Native Americans and, And other folks, you know, so I, I, I guess, well, I guess, you know, if you'd never knew anything about the things, like when I had my first experience, I didn't know those things. Um, I just knew by looking at the creature that it didn't, it didn't look very happy that I was there. And I just had the overwhelming, you know, feeling that I needed to get out of there quickly. Um, it was just, you know, part of the whole gamut of feelings that were hitting me at one time.
4: You know, and the other thing is, and we can't go into details, but not everybody walks away from these things. When when I was listening to Carol talk, well, Will, I told you this. <laughs> While she's talking about that uh, and the small intestines and waking up and, you know, this lady's, you know, thing had its small intestines in its mouth. I was being texted real time about some other situations going on. And I'm like, it was PTSD coming from two different directions at, at the same time. I'm like, Holy crap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You can only imagine what the person experienced that was going through.
4: Yeah. And and here's the thing. Um, That's not an isolated incident. With uh, with primates going for the soft tissue, the the small intestines, we have, you know, the, there's reports of chimps when they have attacked people in Africa, um, <clears throat> they go for that soft tissue. But we've also had very credible and reliable reports here in North America where these creatures do that, and it's it's pretty gruesome.
2: I wonder sometimes if there's any any, you know, genetic memory of things like that.
5: Yeah, I was going to mention that. Uh, yeah, and that's why I was mentioning before, how did that, you know, that feeling even come up to know, to, to leave or know that this thing's malevolent? It was just sort of standing there and, yeah, it didn't look very happy, but how did you know that, you know, you needed to get the hell out of there? It's, I think, I've got a feeling because it, what you mentioned too about, like, um, Native people and Certainly, like, um, First Nations people in Australia and and ancient. So, like, there are stories and stories and stories. I just, I do wonder if, you know, genetically we've been exposed to this for quite some time, but we've just been, like, our generation and, you know, recent have just been kept, kept apart from the knowledge of it or something like that. No one in my family has handed down the stories of the Yowies. I just came across it myself. It, that kind of thing. So I've got a feeling we probably have been exposed to this thing for millennia, maybe. But we just, we don't know of it consciously at the moment. But yet your body knows. The body keeps the score. You know, it's I, very potential.
2: I, I suspect that we have and, and we sort of, uh, you know, and maybe we thought we got rid of them, you know, made them go extinct. I, I think I was mentioning to Tom, once I said, you know, some of the, the fairy tales that we have uh, are, all kind of have the same theme. And I almost wonder if maybe those aren't echoes of memories of, of battles with these things, you know, our, our long ago ancestors, you know, before things were written down and, and these things were just handed down word of mouth. And then over time we simply forgot that they existed, but the genetic memory still exists.
4: You know, one of the things that, that, um, Samantha, you asked, you know, what is it that, that kind of freaks people out? is i've experienced this and we've talked to so many people who have and that is you can get in the proximity of these creatures not see one or hear one but you get this powerful sense like a premonition of doom and and danger i'm not sure what causes that but it's it just kind of comes you know it's part of the territory
5: Yes, uh, I think so too. And, yeah, I'm very interested, like I said, on consciousness and tuning in and that kind of thing. I almost wonder, oh, so, yeah, I've, I've read and heard a fair bit about this myself, about they may even be emanating out a getaway signal and, and that comes, it's perceived through our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system rather, you know, the fight-flight range, is to just get out of there. And it'll be a simple thought, like, uh, just, uh, this doesn't feel right, I think we should just leave. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've got a friend, we've had him on a few times before, or he's a, a forensic anthropologist. And, uh, you know, John, I'm talking about Tom, and uh, he says, well, you know, like infrasound, for instance, you know, there's a lot that's not known about that, and creatures simply could be using that. Uh, it could be a signal that's outside of our hearing range.
4: Yeah, but we would respond to it.
2: Yes. Um
4: uh, yeah absolutely and hey look look at it from the creature's perspective they want you to leave and they they don't want to have to engage you at that moment you know they don't want to hit you with a rock or stick but they just want you to leave and it works well of course they're going to do it again and again because it works
5: Mm. yeah and i think i think as well um one thing I like, like when I look at some of the Australian Yellow research when those guys go out, so Dean Harrison and um, Buck and Gary, something Gary Lynn does is he he will spend a good half an hour or more tuning into the earth and anything on the earth where they are, giving a sense of gratitude basically for being there, but but a non, non-violent um, energy, like building up your intentional status of we're not intending anything, we're just connecting with, you know, any beings if they happen to be there. And and they did get that uh, recent footage, I think it was April, might have been April this year, where I think they used the thermal imaging or something and then Buck just randomly kind of caught it. But it's one of those things I found it interesting. They're just there. They're not, That again, they didn't even know that it was there, of course. It was only because they saw the footage afterwards. But I wonder if, you know, Gary putting out that intention, they're just holding that space of... We're not, we're not here to cause trouble. We're just just researching, basically. That's what they do. They just research. And then those beings were there. I just It's very interesting. I don't have any answers. Well, you know, and them. I it's think, uh,
4: and we've, yeah, well, I think a lot of it is, I, I think the creatures are very observant of and, and able to predict our behavior. And so, and I think that depending upon the uh, posture you project, uh, they can pick up on that. Uh, I, I mean, for crying out loud, mountain lions do that, Bears, deer, all all of the the you know animals that we're familiar with all take readings off of people. I mean, I have a cat in the house, and he can read my intentions. So, um, yeah, just uh, I, you know, it would make sense that these creatures can do that as well. We can, right? So if these things are a hominid, then it kind of makes sense that they could do it as well. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just kind of grasping for a more um, kind of an earthly explanation.
5: Yeah, and I say, and this is my own opinion, my own opinions obviously only come from what I hear and see, and I just sort of think around it. I'm no researcher. But I often wonder if like, these beings just seem so so intelligent and ancient and absolutely equipped to live on the land, like they understand, you know, the forest and all of that. I, I find it's like non-accidental if, if they're going to be in your space, they want to be in your space. Like those beings, I think, wanted to be there. Otherwise they just, they wouldn't be. That's my own thoughts, but I don't know, yeah, what, what other people kind of think on that. I just find it too, they're too intelligent to me. That's how they come across to me.
4: Well, I'll tell you what really got me about, um, I, I don't remember who it was that caught the creatures, was it, um, it wasn't, it wasn't Dean, but it was somebody in his group who caught it on the thermal camera, and it, it really, I got a chuckle out of it, because, yeah, you know, you're, you're out there, you're having a great time, these things are, you know, they're nowhere around, hey, let me have a look at this uh, thermal device, and oh, yeah. well, there they are. 30 no feet idea. away yeah and and that's that's a point that we've tried to make over and over again on this show to people is I mean the the encounter that I had last summer was I had you know I had a uh, couple guys up here with me and, and we were going to an area where you know we knew they were long story short we spent the whole day there and I, I really felt bad because I just knew in my gut that this is a wash this is a complete waste of time and they're nowhere to be found and shortly thereafter it turned into one of the biggest episodes we had with these creatures so um long story short they can be very close to you and i think they're just very very skilled at concealment and cover and and, um and they know exactly how to use utilize their environment, their terrain, to remain hidden. And people say, well, have been in the woods all my life. I've never seen one of these things. And my response is, yeah, but I'll bet they've seen you. Matter of fact, I know that if you've been in the same woods as them, they're very much aware of you. And they probably saw you. That's one thing, too. It's just a comforting feeling that, you know, they really are there, even if you think they're not. (laughs) Mm. Comforting or
5: not comforting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't actually, yeah, go out to the bush as much as I used to. Uh, And it's since I started, yeah, researching a lot more about Yowies. Because where I live too, I'm on the eastern side, so I'm in Queensland. And so you've got that great dividing range. It's just It just runs the whole way down uh, the eastern side of Australia, basically. And there is so, so many sightings, so many things going on. So, no, there's no way. A lot lot of sightings are actually roadside sightings as well, just people driving in trucks or just driving along, and you happen to catch a glimpse or it's dragging a kangaroo off the road.
4: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When we interviewed uh, Annie, and I believe her husband's name is – Daryl, and also um, Baz, majority of the uh, sightings here in the U.S., 70% of them are roadside sightings. So Will and I were just kind of uh, really pleasantly surprised. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's just interesting that there's so many parallels between what we experience with uh, what we call Bigfoot or Sasquatch, and it's the exact same thing. In Australia, two a t, uh, including, um, I think it was Baz who said he got out of the truck and he just had a really bad vibe, and just decided to leave. But uh, yeah, it was when when I went up last summer with uh, these two guys and and we were checking out the area and we encountered these things. Um, I said, man, I thought one of them said, "Yeah, well, we're going to spend the night up here." like well like two or three times I asked him I said now you sure we're going to be okay because I'm thinking we're going to be camping you know I brought a tent along but I was thinking I'm not putting a tent up there's no way I'm going to sleep in the back (laughs) I'm going to sleep in my truck I want steel around me and I finally asked the guy I said you know about towards midnight or so I said so are we uh we going to pitch tents or what and he's like oh no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, mm. no, not a chance uh, yep. yeah with these and I've said this before but uh, he has a certain type of vernacular that comes from the military and he really calls these things Bigfoot That's usually something that rhymes quite a bit with truckers
5: yep, <laughs> yep. not well, with the truckers around <laughs> yeah oh gosh Actually, I did have a question for you just in case you might have come across this from some of your um, reports. Um, I did hear, there was a report once, uh, No, I'm going to mangle it because I can't recall complete details except the obvious ones that stood out to me, was these people, um, three of them were driving in a car in a particular um, forest, probably along the southeast side of Australia, and just going to a general, like, open sort of picnic area, but you've got to drive a bit through the forest in different tracks to get to where you're going. And they, they stopped and pulled up in one spot and then decided, actually, no, they'll go further. So one of the guys got out of the car and was just sort of looking around and he said, no, let's go further. So he just sat on the bonnet of the car and the other two were in the front just because they were driving you know, very, very slow up a little track just to go to another spot. But as they were driving up, Out from the bush, from right to left, walks what he described as, well, well, it's a yaoi. I I can't recall his actual description, but I remember him describing it as looking old, like it was grey around the muzzle and just walked really slow like an old man, just sort of sauntered across the road, looked at them, then looked back to the direction he was walking, just kept sauntering across like he just had no interest, which, of course, they freaked right out, especially the guy on the bonnet of the car. He was smashing on the the windshield to say, (laughs) back it up, get out of there, that kind of thing. They couldn't see probably because he was in the way. So they were, she's still driving the car forward. But what ended up happening is when eventually they stopped and then I think he got back in the car or they just sort of watched. It went into the, crossed the road, went into the bush and then changed. So it actually transformed into something that was not a Yowie or a Bigfoot. It was different. And when they got home, and I think they discussed it, they each saw something different. So one of them said it turned into like a jogger, like somebody running along. So it's like it went behind a tree and then became something else. It was something like that. Another one said it turned into a goanna, which is a very large lizard in Australia, and went up a tree. And the other one said it just disappeared. Have you ever heard anything like that before, where they change or transform?
4: Yeah. Um. Yeah, we, we've heard it. I haven't heard it from uh, anybody directly that I've interviewed. So, um, I, I you know, I don't know. I mean, it's – it's. Um, I, I think there's different things that are out there. And, um, you know, our primary focus – our only focus actually is on the, the, the Bigfoot and the Bigfoot that is, um, you know, native to the planet, you know, a terrestrial Bigfoot that is – something that is living, breathing. But as, as far as the transformation goes, I, I I, just, you know, it's up in the air is
2: what that could be. Well, you know, I have to wonder too, sometimes, you know, people see things here that, you know, cannot physically exist. And I often wonder, like you mentioned, that our, our brains are marvelous mechanisms and they really are. Our brains can create things that aren't there. Um, mm. And I wonder if maybe you know, that sort of short-circuit effect took place in their brain when they actually encountered yeah. the creature and then yep. did a reversal. They, they didn't want to accept what they actually saw. And so it filled in with and other things.
5: That's it. And I think my query around it too because that's exactly where I was heading and it can go in two different directions then is, for example, is that is that being able to do something to our consciousness, to our mind, or are we doing it internally, you know, as a self-protective mechanism?
2: I suspect and, we're doing okay. it ourselves.
5: Yeah. Mm. That's definitely something to ponder on. I'm, I'm very curious about that. Those those are the things that I listen to when I'm hearing people, you know, share their stories. I want to understand their experience of the experience. Even though I, I love the story about what's happening in the details. See, and then that's what you guys are doing. You, you get the details about everything that, you know, possibly transpired in that moment. Whereas I really want to understand what the experience was for the individual. Just intriguing.
4: Well, and, and, you know, again, we don't want to take away from somebody's experience. Uh, We don't want to minimize it. Um, You know, those are just my perspectives. But a question that I had for you is, uh, talking about the brain for a moment, um, you know, we have and, and I study a little, I mean, when I say a little, I mean a little, but I studied a little bit of psychology never years ago. And there's uh, a part of the brain, it's called the limbic system, which actually has a very important function. There's actually, I think, three or four parts of the limbic system. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you could just maybe comment on that. One of them is very uh, reactionary. It's kind of an emotional, where our emotions come from if you had any thoughts. Yes.
5: On that. Oh, well, yeah. So essentially they talk about the brain being a triune brain which is three three sections. Now of course you don't have three brains in your head, but they they are three distinct kind of areas. And what you're describing there is the middle section which is a the limbic system is a a cluster of about, you know, 20 structures really. Um, but the key ones we sort of talk about and you'll often hear about is the amygdala. So that's definitely within the limbic system. And, and that's, that's the part of the brain that really needs to vet um, long before you even think about whether there's danger. It just needs to automatically know whether something represents danger to you or not. Um, and so, of course, within the limbic system, like all your different um, senses bring stimulus through the hardware in your body, so your eyes, ears touch all of that kind of thing smell definitely um, that's got to go through the amygdala first that's the thing and as soon as it goes through that it's vetted as to whether it needs to go to the brain that's up the top or the brain down the bottom so up the top is obviously called the prefrontal cortex and then down the bottom basically it's the brain stem and so if when when you're an ex- when you're experiencing something, that activates that fight-flight system, which is the limbic system makes that decision immediately, something's up, it's going to send a lot of your cortical blood flow down to the bottom part of your brain because that part is really only involved in survival. It just wants to know what do I need to do to live in this moment. It, it's not even going to be interested in details, and that's why we have gaps in memory. It doesn't mean things didn't occur and didn't get recorded somewhere. It's just not readily available to pull from your memory there and then. Whereas, the, you know, if we decide that there's no threat and we're okay, you know, the blood flow around the top part of your brain, you know, you can find your words properly, you feel safe and calm, you can think, decision-make, all that kind of thing. But that, that whole middle system in there, that limbic system, all those different structures in there, they are really about our social and emotional development, our capacity to engage our environment. So you need well, some sort of language, you need some sort of reference system to understand and to be able to communicate with others about your internal world and the external world so that really is that middle section yeah
2: here's something i was wondering too you know when people see something they report they reportedly see something okay it doesn't fit the normal model of of one of these creatures um do you suppose that the, it maybe is something they're more predisposed in other words and i'll use i'll use dogman as an example okay when people see things that they're saying are werewolves uh, that don't exist um, do you suppose there's some kind of a mechanism going on psychologically where the maybe the person is more predisposed to believing that and so that's what their brain is filling in what they're seeing in other words they'll swear up and down they saw all these details but they really weren't there
5: It sounds possible. It definitely sounds possible,
2: yeah. I know from my my training, and mine, mine was just undergraduate coursework in, at college, so, and psychology, so, uh, but I do remember him talking about, uh, and, and the example was like, you know, if to get an example of just how how really complex our brains are and what, the, what it can do, um, you know, each person has a blind spot in each eye, And, and what the brain does is it fills in from the surrounding things it sees to fill in that spot. So you don't know you have a blind spot, but we really have one in each eye, um, in minute details. It fills in, you know, what our perception is, what we're seeing. So I I just wondered if maybe something similar wasn't going on, you know, some people's psychology, you know, their brain didn't want to accept what they're seeing. So it substitutes. Other details that the person really thinks they're seeing, but aren't there.
5: Yeah, no, it's a good call, and it's definitely possible because we don't—you don't see with your eyes; you, you see with your mind. You see with your oc- occipital, occipital—I say occipital—the the lobe at the back of your brain. That is actually, like you said, you use the word perception. The, the eye is just taking stimulus, like you said, and there's already a, def- a deficit in each eye. But it's that's not even how we see because we being that autobiographical creature, it's gotta run through these basic stories we have. Um, which is why it's very hard to maintain curiosity. But you, you have to skillfully master having a curious attitude towards things to avoid some of what you were just talking about there. In fact, it's in it's damn near impossible to be curious when there's some sort of threat around. Curiosity even goes out the window because that that's a level of creation needs to be involved in curiosity a bit in openness and a willingness to learn. That uses the prefrontal cortex. And, of course, we know there's not enough blood flow there when you're in a stress response. It's all down the bottom of your brain gearing up as to whether I do I run or do I stay flat or what do I do? Some pri- yeah.
2: priorities.
5: Mm, absolutely. Yeah.
4: You know, that would explain that, actually that, what you just said. Uh, explains why so many people do not take a picture of these things. They don't take a picture of anything. You know, if, they, if they're confronted by a wild animal, a known wild animal, they don't stop and say, hang on, let me get my cell phone out. Because
2: that Absolutely. creativity it is doesn't enter your mind. fight or flight. Yeah, it doesn't enter your mind at all.
5: No, that's right. And, yeah, from that neurological perspective, what's likely happening is, is when that blood flow is shunting to the bottom of your, your head there, to just make sure that your larger limbs so your gross motor skills are completely ready that blood is flushing all your muscles in your legs and your arms either punch way out or to run the other way it you the fine motor control absolutely goes out the window so you're not fumbling around in your pocket to find your phone to click and press your 10 digit pin code and then get the camera by then the bloody event's over and or you're dead so no i, I would agree no one's thinking of taken, and that is one thing that does bother me. People go, with all the cameras in the world, why haven't we got a photo of a Bigfoot? Obviously, it's not really real. No, there's a lot more going on for a live human being in a stress response, confronted with something that could kill them. I think that, yeah, something else is taking a priority, not a photo.
2: Right. Yeah, very much so. That's right. And so, you know, the thing is, so take So photo, take note out there, people. <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> and, and what I've told people is, you don't need a photo at that moment. You know good and well what's in front of you. The photo is for other folks.
5: <laughs> yep. And that's a really good catch, Tom, because you're talking about purpose. What's the purpose of getting this photo? And you kind of mentioned this before, Will, is people who haven't had encounters and that kind of thing, they'll see, you know, a shadow in a bush or something, and they're quickly rushing to get it up on the internet to show everybody and talk about it. And it's just not, I don't know, if People who have these genuine encounters, it changes their life. It does. Yeah, I don't think the first thing is to rush and show everyone and go, look, look what happened. I don't think that's the first thing that happens for people. People are trying to find sense first. What happened? Yeah.
2: Yeah, like I mentioned, I, I know a number of people that have, have got legitimate photographs, good photographs, and they won't show them. Uh, they just they have a real hard time dealing with it.
5: Yeah. And, yeah, my heart goes out to those people because, yeah, that's a that's a confining, almost isolating experience because that's an aspect of yourself you just can't share with anyone, which means you can't really be fully, wholly authentic, whereas, yeah, you know, that's my goal in working with people is, you know, really developing and strengthening intuition and authenticity and just being whole, even if the only person you might ever share this thing is with me, because we, we will co-create a meaning around what's gone on here to find semblance of how you can move forward in life. So that thing happened and we can give it its rightful place Whereas there's kind of the saying when we're talking about the subconscious, anything you resist persists. So if you push this thing away, it will try to come back into your your conscious in some other way to get your attention. So you you may as well work through it, you know, with a trained counsellor to put it in its rightful place. So it's not as big and scary. That doesn't mean it won't be scary. It's not as big and scary.
4: Absolutely. Well, listen, Samantha, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and also rearranging your schedule to accommodate us. We originally intended to record yesterday, but we I booked that a couple of weeks earlier without realizing that that's Thanksgiving for us here. So um, I, I just want to thank you. And, you know, I'm hoping we can get you back on the show uh, maybe at some point in the future as well.
5: Oh, I would love that
2: that
4: would be, be lovely great. thank you
2: and we, we do really appreciate you coming on
5: wow well, thank you for the opportunity i really appreciate it will and tom thanks
2: all right everyone well stay tuned for the next uh segment in bigfoot history from a copy of a sunday magazine article written in 1947 by Dale Vincent, which tells of a lost tribe of Indian devils called Swalalahist that lived on the upper reaches of the Sixes River. These devils were described as standing over six and and one-half feet tall, heavy and powerful, and covered with a short coat of yellowish fur. The story states that in 1899, two prospectors named Robbins and Benson saw one of these creatures push their camp gear off a cliff near the headwaters of the South Sixes River. They shot at it, but it ran off. Another man called Doc was said to have seen one and measured its footprint at 16 inches by 8 inches.
0: Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story number one, Australia, Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15th, 2009. Australian News, April 2009, two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katumba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Adi Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told All News web reporter Jaden Cassidy, "'We were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state,' Ingrid commented. "'The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, "'basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. "'There have been many recent sightings there. "'Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence.' Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains along with some other locals continue to believe that the Yahweh might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big, they're all hairy, they're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat, but they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoy Rung in Vietnam, and the Yahweh in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall, and this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or Abominable Snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998. VOLUME 64, NUMBER 7. Nathan THE BRUSHMAN BY VELMA WALLACE Sasquatch or something like it appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan the brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Nathan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Natan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Natan. He would hover behind bushes spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists, In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Natan and later returned. Although the Natan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Natan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods, and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter. The startled man looked up and then ran away. Geoffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Natan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs, because there would have been tracks. And camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the Brushman sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number 3. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959 Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane where it stalked teenagers. The Orange Eyes creature first gained notice on March 28th 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in, forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but They found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the beast ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June twenty-third, two thousand 2001, 1038 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head report from Richland County, Ohio. Vintage 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly there he was, less than fifteen feet in front of me. I am a seventy-three-year-old man, and when I was thirteen years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune. Looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Mind you, at this time of my life I had never heard of yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, This figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I Never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that uh, occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish-reddish face which "'floated out of the water, "'I'd say from the front of where his ears should be "'to the front of his face. "'His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. "'His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, "'but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. "'Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, "'not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. "'One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression. Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me, I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. "'Having never heard of these creatures, "'I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, "'and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. "'I was always interested in animals. "'I never ever saw anything like this. "'As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, "'and we had an eye-to-eye connection "'which only lasted a few seconds. "'I can't say for sure, "'but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color.' He felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and as clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me, and thought I had seen a seal, or a walrus, or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it, and kind of forgot it. After many years, later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish white and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more. But finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a Yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on. You may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J., from Maine, Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Grand Marais, Cook County, Minnesota, 2011. Snowmobiler spot Sasquatch in Superior National Forest. My sighting occurred in Minnesota. The nearest city to the sightings is Grand Marais, Minnesota. The sighting was in the Superior National Forest on January 29, 2011 around 3.30 in the afternoon. The area has many lakes and this sighting was near a tributary to one of the lakes. The nearest road to this area is Gunflint Trail. What I and my sisters saw that day was incredible. We were snowmobiling in the back country of northern Minnesota when my family and I were approaching a downhill section of the trail we were on. There was a clearing on the hillside above us, where there was a break in the trees. As I began my descent on the trail, I happened to look up and spotted something in the clearing about 200 yards above me. My sister and I were at the back of our group, so we both slowed to a stop to see what caught my attention. When we looked at what I saw, we observed a tall, man-like creature watching us. It stood there for about a minute, then reached up, grabbed a branch, and walked off into the trees. The creature we saw was maybe seven feet and was dark brown in color with darker areas around the face and chest area. It had long arms and a very human-like appearance with a high forehead area. We grew up in this area and know the local wildlife extremely well. This is not a bear or moose. We have never seen anything like this before. My family has been somewhat skeptical about the sightings of these beings, so when we saw it, it really frightened us. Sorry, no photos, because I was on a snowmobile, and it is rather hard to carry a camera in an easily accessible place. We circled around and could see large barefoot tracks in the snow. The snow is so deep in Minnesota this year, so it was hard to get close enough to get any pictures of the tracks but you could definitely tell that a two-legged creature passed through the area where we saw it. I wish I had more evidence, but unfortunately I never dreamed that I would ever see something like this, so it really stunned us. My sister doesn't want to go there again, but I would really like to go back in the summer to see if there is anything to be found. This definitely made me a believer in Sasquatch. We did not report it to any authorities for fear of being ridiculed. My sister and I wish to remain anonymous for this same reason. But we would like the rest of our story to be shared so that others will know that they are not crazy if they see one of these creatures. Anonymous in Grand Marais, Minnesota, February 2012. That's the end of story number one. Story number two A story out of Siskiyou County, California, approximately 1996. My name is Mark Kennedy, and I have a good story. It happened about ten years ago while a crew of twelve, including myself, was working a contract for the Forest Service to clear a couple miles of Wilderness Trail. I believe it was our first night at this particular spot, which was an area in the north end of the Trinity Alps. It was about twenty-six miles into the wilderness zone of the Trinity Forest, Camp was about five miles off the road in a beautiful meadow with a small lake called Red Cap Lake. We were done with our second day of work on this particular trail. It was a trail that took you through the prayer rocks of the Hupa and Yurok tribes. Being in the Trinity Alps, obviously we were really high up. We started at about 5,000 feet and maybe went up another 1,000. The trail was about 10 or 12 miles long and split about 3 miles south of Redcap Lake. One trail took you down into one of the many gorgeous secluded valleys in the Alps. The other took you to a point. Literally the end of the trail was on a point that extended out quite a few feet from the true edge of the cliff. At that point we were about 2,000 feet above the forest below us. So we were very remote. In the meadow, our first night there, we split into two groups trying to find the best camp spot. Really, not hard to do. The meadow was just about twice the size of a football field. Half was all knee-high green grass. The entire west side of the meadow was a small lake. You could catch pan-sized trout all day long in that little lake. Now, Our meadow was off the main trail which rode the peaks of the mountains we were on. You walked down into this meadow from the north end, and as you walked, you got a bird's eye view of the entire area. At the south end of the meadow was an extremely rocky cliff that rose above the lake about 200 to 300 feet, with the forest ending right at the edge at the top. So now you understand the area a little as I tell this story. We were just finishing our nightly session to end the day around the campfire. Both campsites were at the south end of the grass, near the rocks not far from one another. Everybody had just grown quiet as we all were drifting off to sleep. Suddenly, there was this god-awful screaming, howling-like noise that echoed through the meadow to make it sound like the screaming was coming from all directions. And for what seemed to be forever, the strange noise finally stopped and was followed up by one of the trees at the top of the rock cliff getting pushed off. "'I swear that tree must have hit every single rock "'that was in its path on the way down. "'And as it grew closer, the more petrified I became "'due to its sounding like it was right on top of our camp. "'Finally the crashing noise came to a stop "'without ever landing on someone's tent. "'I still couldn't move, though. "'I was frozen positioned. "'I still couldn't move, though. "'I was frozen positioned "'and seeing the brightest shade of yellow I've ever seen.' I think the others were, too. Nobody wanted to come out of their tents, but everybody wanted the reassurance of the others. The rest of the night was uneventful. The next morning we were all around the campfire, sounding like a bunch of old biddies, gossiping about the night before. We found the tree that came down. It was a full-grown fir. must have been a full-sized tree when it started down the cliff. wasn't much left of it when it got to the bottom. I have never heard that strange scream since, and have been back in the woods plenty. None of us could come up with a reasonable explanation for what we heard that night. Shortly thereafter, we were joined by a guide who was Native American. This guide informed us that the prayer rocks I wrote about earlier are on sacred ground, and it is believed that there is a Bigfoot protecting that whole mountain. The guide also went on to say that the noise has been heard before, but in other places we discussed how big of a creature it would take to push over a full-grown pine or fir tree. We know it wasn't a bear, unless bears are coming up with horrifying new screams. So, it wasn't a bear, but it had to be big and strong. The tree's circumference was about four, maybe five feet. And, we concluded from memory of seeing the tree, it was about fifty feet tall and very much alive. At least the parts we were looking at came from a live tree. Nobody would climb up the easy rocky cliff to see where the tree used to be located, so I couldn't tell you if there were any footprints or not. But I can say that this story was backburnered in my memory to tell at the campfires for entertainment. It became very interesting when I heard one of many documentaries about this screaming, howling-like noise that the Bigfoot has been known to make. When I heard that, all of a sudden, that night needed to be shared. This is the end of this story. Story number four. August 2007, Lake Tahoe, Placer County, California. Tracks found 18 inches long, 9 inches wide. I was camping last August with my nephew north of Lake Tahoe. We had been in a moderately developed campground, Crystal Peak Overlook, about twenty miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, where we live. There, my nephew made friends with another little boy, and I started talking to the other little boy's grandmother. She told me how her husband and son had found these big prints, that May, along a creek, above another nearby campground, Dog Valley Creek. They reported that in one print they could even make out separate tow tracks. They told a ranger who gave them some plastic tape to mark the spot. That got me curious, so we moved camp the next day to Dog Valley, a primitive campground. This is on the dry side of the Sierras at the Timberline, which is about 6,000 feet. Generally, the granite soil of the Sierras doesn't sustain much vegetation, but in this area several small streams converge to make a marshy pasture with a lot of biodiversity. We hiked up the creek that flows through the campground. It was a moderately steep climb. About a hundred yards up, I spotted the bits of tape tied to sticks, stuck in the ground, in a particularly thick patch of trees. The forest floor was covered with pine needles, but you could still see the depressed area of the prints sunk in the soil beneath leaves. In August, when we were there, even I, at over 200 pounds, didn't leave a footprint. Perhaps in May, in the deep shade, the ground had been muddy enough to take tracks. There were three prints marked out, but only one was still the outline of a full foot. However, I could no longer make out any separate toe impressions. It was about eighteen inches long and nearly nine inches wide. All the pictures I took came out pretty useless. Only the one where I put my bare foot in the tracks gives you any idea of size. The area is about 20 miles from human habitation, but gets maybe a dozen people a week off-roading during June through October. The roads to the area aren't cleared in the winter, so there's hardly anyone there until May. The area is in the rain shadow of the high Sierra Peak, so even in winter there's probably less than a couple feet of snow, and it has lots of springs. I'd guess this area would have edible vegetation if not all winter, at least very early in the spring. This area is not too far south of the Cascade Range, where there are more Sasquatch reports, and might be the sort of area a species might migrate south to for the winter. My nephew asked if the footprint could be made by a really tall person, like a basketball player, so when I got home I did some net research. 18 inches would be a shoe size, 26 many, many E's. The nearest I found was a guy eight foot four who wears a size 25. There are less than a dozen people in the USA that tall, and most use canes or crutches and wouldn't be up to a barefoot hike in the mountains. I don't have a scanner, but I'll see if I can find a friend to scan the one halfway decent photo to you. Yes, I did have a camera, but it was a little 35 millimeter disposable and the footprint I found is hard to make out and the markings on the measuring tape I had in one picture can't even be made out at all. There may have been three prints, but only one was clear enough to be a definite footprint. Gina Bagney Date Friday, 1st of February, 2008 That's the end of story number four this next story is entitled wichita county arkansas nineteen forties i am seventy five years old i was raised in the county of wichita in arkansas we used to hear bigfoots during winter time dad says they were panthers till dad and his brother saw five bigfoots in a pool of water at a river bottom my uncle never got over that shock and would not go into the woods again Dad said they were ugly, and the females had breasts that hung down to here, pointing to his body. I recall laying in that broad shack. It was cold, listening to them scream and scream, and they did a lot. When I was all of five years old, my dad was out running trap line and doing some farming in the summertime. It was at this time that our canned goods began to go missing from our smokehouse. One time, whole smoked ham disappeared. We could not figure out who was taking the food. My dad told mother that he thought someone or something was following him when he was out running his trap lines. One day he spotted someone. The little fellow was about four and a half feet tall with hair all over him. It also had a hump back and was very ugly in the face which had facial hair. Dad began talking to it and leaving food for the little fellow. It wasn't long before when my dad would go into the woods and holler, the little guy would suddenly appear. We named him Little Sam, which was a name my grandpa had. Nobody knew about Little Sam outside of our family. All those years Dad was in touch with Little Sam, I only saw him two times in my childhood. After I got married and moved to Oklahoma, my mother wrote me and told me about Dad and Little Sam, saying that they had not seen Little Sam in some time, but they went looking for him and found him dead. When I was reading the letter, I started to cry. It was very sad. Little Sam never uttered a word that I heard about, but he grunted. This is the end of story number five. This is story number six. Wild in McHenry County, Velva, North Dakota, 1908. The Stevens Point Journal, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Saturday, February 16th, 1908. Captured a wild man, curious find recently made at Velva, North Dakota. The journal is in receipt of a clipping from a Velva, North Dakota paper from J. Thomas, who is formerly a resident of Keene, a son of Mrs. John Thomas, who still lives at Keene. It relates to the discovery of an alleged wild man near Velva, not far from Mr. Thomas's home. IT IS STATED, FOR THREE YEARS THERE HAVE BEEN RUMORS OF THIS WILD MAN BEING SEEN BY PERSONS OF VERACITY, BUT HE HAD NEVER BEEN ENCOUNTERED AT CLOSE RANGE UNTIL A FEW DAYS AGO, WHEN TWO CATTLEMEN, WHO WERE OUT HUNTING, SUDDENLY CAME UPON HIM FACE TO FACE AS HE EMERGED FROM A THICKET OF BRUSH. ONE OF THEM SUCCEEDED IN THROWING A LASSO AROUND HIM, AND BEFORE HE COULD ESCAPE, HE WAS DRAGGED TO A TREE AND BOUND ROUND AND ROUND WITH THE LASSO. Later he was bound hand and foot, and carried to town on a dray, where he was imprisoned in a basement. His only clothing was a loin-girdle of sheepskin tied with binder-twine. He had not been shaved or had a haircut in years, and being a man of an extremely hairy variety, he presented a very grotesque and wild appearance. His eye-teeth are reported to be unnaturally elongated in the form of tusks, He refused to talk or eat anything, but drank water like a horse, half a pail at a time. The singular part of it is that this man has always been seen within two miles of the village of Velva. This is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Montgomery County, Arkansas, June 2008. On May 26, 2008, While the writer was in Clark County, Alabama, with area researchers, information was received by telephone from C.K., an Arkansas RFP Research Project investigator, that a married couple in the rural Montgomery County, Arkansas, had found evidence and had heard sounds that indicated more than one reclusive forest primate was foraging on their property at night. That information had been submitted to C.K., by the adult son of the woman who is joint owner and resident of the property. On June 7, 2008, CK and the property owner's son and the writer drove to the site and met with the couple. We arrived about 3 o'clock p.m. and left shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. The couple are in their late forties and both have daytime employment in Hot Springs. They have purchased a 16-acre tract of land in Montgomery County and plan to build a home on it later. The north side of the property slopes to a small spring-fed creek. That hillside and the creek bottoms below are densely forested with various hardwoods, pine, and cedar. The underbrush has been cleared from the area of the planned home site. Along the creek there is a very thick undergrowth of vines and brush. The land south of the creek was at one time cultivated, but it is now overgrown in brush, vines, and small trees through which trails have been cut with a bush hog. Throughout the property there is a prolific growth of muscadine, summer grape, and blackberry vines. There are at least two pear trees in the old cultivated area, although the one seen by the writer appears to be ornamental Bradford pear. A neighbor told them that he had gathered pears from one of the trees. Earlier this year, the owners obtained utilities on the property, and in late February or early March, they opened a driveway through the timber on the north portion of the property. In late February of this year, they purchased a new travel trailer and installed it about 75 yards from the county road that is the northern boundary of the property. General Information About the Area The actual location of the property is not disclosed at the owner's request. The property is within two miles of a river, which is a popular stream for canoeing and wade fishing. The site is within the foothills of the relatively small but rugged Caddo Mountains, which adjoin the southern flank of the Wichita Mountains. The area contains a large population of deer, turkey, and raccoon, The area has some cougar and no doubt many bobcat. A large male cougar was reportedly killed within one-half mile of the property a short time ago. During this initial visit to the site, the writer noted a very fresh cougar track in the dust alongside the county road near the home where a wide, well-used game trail crosses the county road. While the area is expected to contain all the other small animals and birds common to this part of the state, it was surprising that no coyote sign was seen around the property, and when asked, the owners said they had never heard coyotes in the area. Summary of Events After moving into the travel trailer, the owners built a wooden porch patio underneath the trailer's retractable awning. While neither of the residents are hunters, and neither own a firearm. They are both avid bird and animal watchers. They have installed feeders for birds and began putting out dog food and scraps for the raccoons. For some time the couple had been spreading corn on the ground in a spot in the woods in front, east of the trailer, and at another location on the opposite side of the trailer as food for the deer. Sometime after they started putting out corn for the deer they found a carcass of a deer near the west side feeding area. The witnesses stated that one of the deer's front legs and its head had been torn off. The head was found a few yards away, but the leg was partially eaten nearby. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and much of its hind quarters had been eaten before the carcass was found. They stated the deer's body cavity and stomach had been torn open, and the internal organs had been removed. There was undigested corn and corn mush inside the body cavity and spilled outside the carcass. When the carcass was again viewed the next day, they saw fresh blood and an exposed shoulder blade which indicated something had fed on the carcass overnight. A week or so later, another deer carcass was found at the other baiting site in front of the trailer. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and the carcass torn open and partially consumed. Shortly after finding the last deer carcass, the couple stopped putting out corn because they thought a cougar was ambushing the deer at the baiting locations. A day or two later, the couple found an injured dog lying beside the porch early one morning. They don't own a dog. When they stepped outside, the dog managed to get up and walk away, but there was a large bloody area on the ground where it had been lying. Shortly after seeing the injured dog, they found out that another dog... A Rottweiler, weighing close to 200 pounds and, belonging to the neighbor, had been attacked or otherwise injured. Something had torn off one of that dog's back legs. According to the couple, the dog somehow managed to return to his owner's home and still was alive. The couple said that now, the large dog usually just stays on the porch and will no longer leave the owner's yard. Investigators note, when C.K., and the woman's son and this writer were leaving the couple's home site and driving through the woods road toward the county road the night of the initial meeting, Sike, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, told me there was a deer in the woods on my side of the vehicle. I stopped and saw an animal that I at first thought was a coyote moving through the woods. As I entered a more open spot, we saw that it was a large dog. We then drove away. The next night, about 8.30 p.m., the property owner called to tell me that when he went outside early that morning he found a dog badly injured at the old baiting site east of the trailer. He said that it appeared the dog's back or its hips had been broken. He said at the time that he did not think that the dog would survive, although he said the dog managed to drag itself away the next morning. From his description of the dog, it was the same one that the three of us had seen the night before. Shortly after finding the deer carcasses, the husband spoke to a neighbor about any strange things that had occurred on the neighbor's property. The neighbor reportedly told him that five of his sheep had been killed and ripped apart inside an enclosure. When asked what he thought had killed the sheep, the neighbor said he thought it was dogs, because he found some type of terrier inside the enclosure when he found the dead sheep. The couple stated that they had often sat outside on the patio porch at night and early in the morning during the week. He arises about 4.30 a.m. on weekdays to make coffee, and she joins him outside for a few minutes later. They both leave for work about 5 a.m. They stated that on many occasions when they stepped outside before daylight, They would hear the sounds of something crashing through the woods and brush near the trailer. They assumed it was deer bounding away, although they thought it was odd that deer would make such noise leaving the area. They said that on several occasions they had heard loud, ape, or monkey-like sounds from the adjoining woods while sitting outside late in the evening and at night. Recently it became apparent to them that at times the sounds were being made by more than one animal. A few weeks ago, a relative found a very large, about 18 inches long, track in a fire ant hill near the creek. The residents found another such track in one of their small vegetable gardens located northeast of the trailer. On the day of this initial visit, the writer observed two recently made tracks of about the same approximate size in the leaves and soil west of the trailer. The property owners also reported that some of the suet blocks used to feed birds were torn down and removed. They supposed that raccoons had taken the food, even though the couple thought they had suspended the blocks out of the reach of those animals. The husband began using wire to secure the door of the wire suet baskets so that raccoons could not open them if they managed to get them. Although the wife stated she could not open the baskets with her hands after her husband wired them shut, Something continued to tear the baskets down and open them to obtain and consume the suet blocks. Recently the couple began putting up hummingbird feeders. Two of the feeders are small, but one holds about a quart of sugared water. A few nights ago, when the large feeder was nearly full, something reached the feeder and drank the entire contents except for some spillage that coated the outside surface of the container. The feeder was elevated and suspended away from a tree trunk, on an L bracket. Because of the position of the container and its capacity the couple thinks it is unlikely that raccoons emptied it, although they concede that a raccoon might have been responsible. Other details While completing this initial report the writer telephoned the reporting witnesses at 8.40 p.m. on June 10th to ask about a few details. After clarifying the details "'The husband asked if he could pose a question to me. "'When I told him that, of course, he could, "'he asked if I had ever heard whooping-type sounds "'which he began to imitate over the phone. "'The sounds he made were nearly identical "'to the whooping sounds attributed "'to the reclusive forest primates. "'When I told him the possible source of the sounds, "'he said that both he and his wife "'had heard those sounds about twenty minutes earlier "'coming from the opposite side of the creek "'and downstream.' After some discussion, he said that he might go onto the porch and make those sounds to see what would happen. I advised him to be extra careful because the animals might be much closer than when he heard them originally. This is the end of this collection of stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil.